Welcome to episode 116 of Destination Linux. Destination Linux is a podcast made with four of the greatest minds ever to discuss their passion for Linux. This episode, there's going to be three hosts, so only three of the four, but um, we'll get to that in, in a minute. I'm Michael, and with me today are two Herculean podcasting pals. <laughs> Ryan, how are things? They are wonderful. All right. Uh, Noah, how you been? Tickety-boo. Absolutely, tickety-boo. Uh, speaking of tickety-boo, Zeb is out for this episode, and he'll also be out next week because he'll be on holiday. Uh, we're, we're told that he'll be using his vacation time to catch up on pixelated games, and that all the ones that he missed, and also trying out new pixelated games. And um, so just to like kind of, so he can embrace the full uh, pixelation. Experience. Like yeah, experience. before Southeast Linux Fest. Right, exactly. Because we're gonna, he's gonna experience where he's a going, ton. He's giving a talk on pixelated games and their development. Yeah, and he's and the benefit it, to the community and his his overcoming of his pixel phobia. Pixel. <laughs> He'll also be switching to an adult GPU, which will be Team Red, of course. Uh, yes. So uh, apparently, that's what that's what I've heard anyway. So right. Ryan, how have you been this week? Like it's been an interesting weekend or week because I went to Disney World with the kids. And Disney World was interesting. There are some privacy and security issues there that are pretty blaring, which we could get into. But the biggest problem is there were zero Linux rides out there. And there were only two situations in which Linux was kind of represented. One was a statue of a penguin, and the other was an actual penguin at the Animal Zoo. Well, that's so awesome. That was that did you uh, Linux related stuff? Did there. you vocalize your complaint of the lack of Linux rides to the Disney personnel so that they could rectify the situation at their earliest convenience? You have no idea uh, how much we gave uh, Disney some flack, but it wasn't necessarily just for their Linux stuff. But funny enough, my wife, who now has become privacy and security minded, was pretty upset when she when they asked the five year old and six year old to give their fingerprints to be able to get into the park and biometric scans to get into the park because what? they not only want your fingerprint, but they use biometrics because they don't want to dare lose an extra $40 for the kid's ticket because apparently there's cases where some people would take one kid in and then leave the park and bring that kid's band to another kid and they would lose some money. So because of that, they are basically have set up the security system where you use your fingerprint, even for kids, to get in along with a RFD band on your on their wrist and biometric camera photography to basically be able to determine if you're actually that person of yeah. which my wife said not going to happen so we eventually found a workaround where after they threatened to kick us out and everything else we didn't make a scene we were just like look we're not you know it's kids we're not giving you biometric data and the kids and fingerprints and all this stuff Naturally, give us a workaround, and they do have one. But you had they really want to make you utilize that stuff, which I thought was pretty lame for a resort like that. That's supposed to be the happiest place on earth, and to have a situation in which kids' pictures and things are stored. And of course, I went and looked it up later, and they say, well, we don't store it past their visit for you know the trip to Disney and all of that. But how do we really know what they're doing there? Well, they don't need so, to store it past the visit because they can just sell the data right then. So yeah, it's fine. so Disney fail. On privacy and security, uh, maybe it doesn't security. sound like they're going far enough. I feel like if they really want to be secure, they should really be collecting a blood sample and doing a DNA 
<laughs> the fingerprints are notoriously not accurate as is facial recognition. Now, we've seen that with iOS. We've seen that with Android. And I think that it's probably true even at Disney. That's yeah, a good point. That's a good you're point. right. They need to take it up a level because it just wasn't good enough. So fail from Disney on the Linux uh, rides. That's a fail. Fail on the privacy front for Disney. But overall, the kids had an okay time. But what's interesting is they were more interested in Marvel stuff. So there were a couple instances of Star Wars that were there at the parks, but they want to see the Marvel stuff kids these days. They're not interested in the puppets, animatronics that don't even touch the drums when they're drumming or that were made that you could probably make yourself now with a kit from Amazon. They're not interested in all of that stuff. So I think next time it's Universal Studios, as long as they don't have fingerprint and biometric data collection needs to get into the park. Did you get the fast pass? I did. Yes, we used the fast passes there. Was it a good recommendation? Absolutely. Uh, the fast pass is the only way to go because every ride was either an hour and a half or longer to sit in line and wait. And you know, with kids, good luck with that. Yeah, that was my vacation. One, one more thing, a couple things actually. Uh, the lug group I have this Saturday, so we moved it one week. So the if you're in the Georgia area and you want to uh, come and and hang out with us at the Linux user group that we have, it is Linux and Coffee. You can find details on my website, dosgeekcommunity.com. Come and hang out with us. Bo Weaver will be there as well. So we and, and I actually brought the right Raspberry Pi touchscreen so we can do a little kit building and things this time around. And also, Noah, I have something for you specifically because you recommended uh, a specific server. I told you I got it, but then something happened on my vacation that changed. Uh-oh. They emailed me and said, look, the motherboard on that, particular super micro server has gone bad and we can either you can wait a couple of weeks and we'll fix it or we'll send you another survey or server and it's this version it is a hs 1235t 12 bay raid free nas server with dual xeon e5620 2.4 gigahertz 48 gigabytes of memory and eight terabytes and we won't charge you anything more i got it for 300 bucks with shipping is that a good server gee let me think about that uh yes carry the one <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Math says that was a good deal. Yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. Cool. So I will have a free NAS server and I'll probably do some VM stuff on that because I think it's a little overkill for just a free NAS server. Um, I'll probably do some VM stuff on that as well, but that will be coming Monday, this Monday. So I'll have some videos on that coming soon. Very That'd nice. Be awesome. Very yep. nice. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, no, what, what trouble you've been getting yourself into this week? I, I got myself in so much trouble. I, my son, um, continues to uh, to exceed his school requirements. And so one of the things that my wife and I uh, started to do is to get him involved in some extracurricular programs to try to challenge him a little bit. And um, so he he started doing basic algebra, and then that eventually led to Python now, basic Python. So he's learning basic Python. And uh, so this week, he ended up writing a, a, a short Python script that would ask for two numbers and then based on the operator that you gave it would add the two numbers, subtract the two numbers, divide the two numbers and multiply the two numbers. So I'm looking at his homework and none of his work is there. I'm like, how did you do this? And he's like, I, I just did it. I'm like, well, did you use a calculator? No. I'm like, well, how did you do it? And then he shows me this little Python script he wrote. And I was like, <laughs> that's, that's legit. Genius. Like that's it's awesome. not going to fly. Cause I can't explain this to your teacher, but nice job, dude. <laughs> So yeah, he's that's that's been that's been his thing, and now he's. I was not familiar with Turtle. My my son has learned this in his in his Python class, and now it it essentially takes this little turtle, and you can make it run around the screen and oh. leave a path for where it went. Uh, and I 
still don't really, I mean, I understand conceptually how it works, but I have no idea how to actually do it. Um, but now he's drawing stuff in Python with this turtle. Yeah, thing, so which cool. is, nice. Yeah, which is pretty cool. I mean, think about the advantages of learning coding at that age. I mean, that wasn't even mm-hmm. a thing. In, well, I, I had the advantage of growing up around computers and stuff with my dad, but you know, coding programs for kids weren't around, but Linux has tons of educational programs for kids to, to, the, to kick off. You know, the truth is, it honestly, it's not any more complicated than Legos. It's just that the leg, there's, there's a higher, there's a higher bar. There's only, there's only so complex things you can build with Legos. With right. Python, you can start with just simple print commands, right? I, mm-hmm. Any eight-year-old, I'm convinced, can learn how to use print commands and have the computer spit out things. And any eight-year-old can learn the input command and learn how to take user input and then chop it up and, and spit it back out. I think any, any eight-year-old can be taught to do that. The difference is, unlike Legos or some of the toys of the 1990s or 1980s, Python is going to allow him to continue to explore technology and continue to learn things well beyond uh, just you know, building small toy cars and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And also Python is like the best language to learn, even if you've never programmed before. So having a kid learn that one is is a great option because it's it's also like very simple, but at the same time, incredibly powerful. So you could do a ton of different stuff with it. Actually, I was, so it was interesting. So one of the things that he wanted to do with, um, I don't remember what what thing he was working on, but he wanted Python 3 because 2 wasn't, something had changed between 2 and 3. Don't ask me what it was. I went to upgrade his system to Python 3, and I found that inadvertently there are huge portions of Ubuntu, at least in 16.04, the software center and the terminal, and a bunch of stuff stops working if you have the wrong version of Python because it uses Python to actually run those things. So it's kind of cool to see that, there are major portions of Linux that are actually utilizing Python or have been written in Python. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before we move on, I just want to let you know that um, I did release a video that I said I was going to, and it didn't take till 2020. Whoa. It, it was the uh, a video where I did the, uh, the interview on the radio station that we talked about last week. So if you want to check that out, there'll be a link in the show notes for that. Uh, but also, you can just go to TuxDigital.com to get the, 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 the video. This episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. You can get all this plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. Or you can use their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. DigitalOcean has uh, also 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up-to-date with the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks. You can get started with DigitalOcean by going to do.co slash dl to get two months free with a $100 credit. Again, that's do.co slash dl. So be sure to check it out with DigitalOcean. And thank you very much to, for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. Before we get into the email, we just want to give a special thanks to everybody who has supported the GoFundMe to bring Zeb to America. With your generosity, we've reached our target goal of $2,000. And in total, you've raised a massive of $2,026. And that is absolutely awesome. And we are very sincerely grateful to each and every one of you who have donated, regardless of what the amount was, every little bit helped. And it's fundamentally going to change the show because it's going to bring all all four of us into the same room. And we're going to have an opportunity to meet one another. And we're going to have an opportunity to get to know each other in person. We'll have an opportunity to meet you. If you're going to be there with us at self, we'll have an opportunity hopefully to go out and get some lunch and, and hang out and get to know each other and build the Linux and open source community. So a big thanks to each and every one of you who made that possible. 
and we're going to make sure that Zeb is acting tickety-boo the entire time and keeps <laughs> M- Michael in check itself. Yeah. I love it. And thank also, you, everyone. Yeah, we absolutely. Really yeah, we, we massively thank you. It also makes it a lot easier for my edit so I don't have to have three of us there and then one of us in the remote. I, I appreciate that, too. <laughs> and Zeb has booked his ticket, so he will be there, and we'll all be live, live and we'll do some live streams on our channels as well. So uh, even if you can't uh, join us there, just make sure to tune in to the Destination Linux YouTube channel and or our individual channels for our live streams of showing Zeb and some of the antics he gets into in the United States. So now for our email. So this one's going to be interesting because it's a topic we've actually discussed off air this week uh, a few times. And so it was very timely from Acid. He says, hi, DL team. First, I would like to say thanks to Ryan for keeping the show going and helping Rocco prior to the new format. I've been a listener since episode one and was so happy that Destination Linux lived on. My comment today is gaming related. and We'd like to talk about the no tucks no bucks narrative. I love that saying that gets painted sometimes after a few comments on one of the episodes about Michael dual booting or dual booting in the past, which we all know is true, but really false, but still kind of true (laughs) because we want it to be true. I know in this case, it was just funny banter, but I think there is a broader issue at times that can come across very Linux elitist at the core. I get it. I would love nothing more than to see a day when Linux gaming does not face the same challenges as they do today. And I agree we should all go out of a way to support game devs to support Linux. However, at this point in time, it's just not possible for everyone to make that commitment 100%. Some people want to play games. They're not in Linux, and I think that's okay as a community. I think at times we'd be doing a better job of helping people set up their systems and workflows to maximize the power of Linux while not making them feel like they have to give up something in order to do it. So this part of the comment reminded me, Michael, of the interview you talked about that you did in which you were talking about, uh, you and the host were talking about your local uh, Linux group mm-hmm. and the fact that people can come there with their computer and people would be, you know, who are brand new, who have never touched Linux and people would be overwhelmed to want to uh, sw- help switch them live there on the spot into yeah, Linux and absolutely. just got with it, which was very much the experience that I personally had coming into Linux where people seem to just give, uh, for the most part, overwhelming support and wanting to help me figure and, and, you know, navigate all of the different things within Linux. So, I thought that was very cool and true and something we definitely want to promote. I'm coming up to three years on Linux. And at that time, I've successfully rolled out Linux to my company, which is amazing that you've done that. That employs 40 people, even completely changing a whole suite of apps to make it work. Nice. I use Linux in 99% of my personal use for gaming, email, and web surfing, etc. I still have a Windows install. Gross. That just I'm just kidding. That just have a few <laughs> games that to me and my friends enjoy playing to relax. I treat... Uh, my Windows install, no different to owning a PS4 Switch login, uh, you know, play games and then log out. As I've mentioned, I know comments made on your show were in good um, gesture and DL does not promote this sort of narrative, but I felt it's necessary enough of a broader issue at times. It's worth a conversation. Linux gaming is in a position where it's growing and we have more games. We have more options like OBS, GIMP, Caden Live, etc. that are doing great, but uh, basically, he goes on to say that while it's fabulous, there are is situations in which not everybody can use Linux all the time. Thanks in advance, uh, makes the show or not. I hope it can be a topic of conversation. Well, we wanted this to be part of the show because while we don't, while we get a lot of people who understand the you know filthy dual booting jokes and things like that are just that a joke. There are people who do take it seriously, and we've received you know probably three or four emails in total about people saying, "Hey, I don't like this joke," or. Uh, maybe it's rubbing off the wrong way to people. So I think context is important 
with things like this. And Michael, that's been one of your points this week is that uh, if that context isn't there, somebody new listening to the show could hear it. And then it sounds like we're being elitist. But um, well, what are your thoughts on it, Michael? Well, mainly the reason I brought it up is, and especially it was a good timing with this email, is because there's there's sometimes where I've had people send me messages on Telegram, um, Mastodon, Twitter, uh, just YouTube comments in general. But like they'll they'll contact me specifically, um, you know, asking to me asking me if it's like a legit complaint that they're that people that you have or that we have as a as a as a podcast, or if they're you know they'll try to like explain to me like like not really console me but in the sense of like explaining why they don't agree with it being like a filthy dual booting thing or whatever and it's mainly just me having to respond and let them know that it is just a joke we're not really you know, we don't have anything against dual booting in general we prefer not to dual boot we, we if you can i we nobody do. here actually dual boots yeah exactly so it's it's more of a thing of we just make a we it was a joke along I don't remember exactly what started oh, okay, I do remember. It was the when I when I mentioned that I used Photoshop in a VM and that became like when we found out you were a dual booter. That's yeah. uh, so every other time on the show would be appropriate. This is probably the one time we have to start it. <laughs> but he, he runs he runs it in a VM. He, I, I, let me can I give you another side of this or or, or offer another uh, yeah, another perspective. I, I think sometimes the the other side of that is that as Linux users, we have been outcasts for 20 plus years and we've finally reached a point in 2019 where there are some communities that are quote unquote safe for us to express Linux. And I, I, I'm, I'm particularly sensitive to this because for the vast majority of my IT career, I was in a Windows world and inside of that Windows world, I was expected to attend Windows conferences and I was expected to attend Microsoft events and I was expected to go to trade conferences where it was a an assumed standard that you had Windows and you had Microsoft Office and you had these tools that everybody else had. And it wasn't that anybody ever told me so much, oh, you're using Linux or you're an idiot. But that was kind of the that was kind of the the way they went about it. Like when you went to plug in your laptop and you said, oh, I'd have to use my laptop because I, I don't use PowerPoint. Well, what do you use? Open Office. <laughs> Why would you use that? You know, and, and, and we've yeah. had to deal with that. And, and I think a part of what where that why that joke is is funny or humorous or why it keeps coming up is because it's it really to me it it feels like a celebration of the fact that we finally reached a point where there can be a community that embraces linux and if you're not using linux then you're the odd one out and 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 so linux becomes the the, the assumption and and I, we're going to talk about this a little bit later in the episode but one of the things i like so much about destination linux specifically I've never felt like I had to fight to use Linux here. I, I've always felt like Linux is always a first-class citizen. If mm-hmm. we're going to use a video chat, it needs to work on Linux. If we're going to use a text editor, mm-hmm. it has to use – like all of those, Linux becomes a first-class citizen. And I think with that, you're naturally going to get a little bit of playful banter going back. And, and, and the other part I, I just like to say is I think that sometimes people it, – it, it comes off as unwelcoming, and I understand that. I think far more often, though – People use the, well, you should be welcoming to all things as an excuse to not make an effort to move the needle forward. And, and that tends to frustrate me a little bit. I, I dealt with a, with a specific Linux community that wanted to do a very non-Linux thing. A very, they wanted to take a Linux event and have a very non-Linux-centric thing that would occur at this Linux event. And myself and some of the other organizers basically said, hey, listen, you know what? That's a really cool idea. And I think that would be really appropriate in a lot of places. 
But the idea here is to get people introduced into Linux. And if we do that thing, people are not going to walk out introduced to Linux. They're going to fall back into the ever so vast rut that is Windows. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't do that thing. And, and yet, was that maybe unwelcoming to some Windows users? Maybe. But I think it kind of underscored a point. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, I think I started uh, this joke. Usually I'm the one who starts these type of things uh, to tr- the trouble that leads to emails coming in. But, uh, <laughs> you know, here's the thing. It, and I said this in my interview horribly. It's kind of humorous, actually, to go back and watch it because I think um, I, I just totally destroyed it. But in every joke, there's a little bit of truth. Yes. And the the truth here is, while it's a joke and we make fun of Michael and others, and people could take that the wrong way, I think the vast majority of people who are longtime listeners understand how this show is. And one of the things that people love about the show is we cut up. But the yeah. little truth in it is this. Uh, I think, like you were saying, Noah, too many people still rely that don't have to. There are situations right. that you have to. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with it. Right. But I think sure. too many people, and we're going to see this later in the article, uh, in one of the articles, rely on this switching into Windows when you don't have to, when you could, when you could fully commit, and when you fully commit, it's going to help a lot of things. Uh, and again, you'll know when we get into the gaming section exactly what I'm talking about. But it's even outside of that, where Linux is being held back because so many people just like, well, if I can't get it to work on Linux, I'll just go into my Windows. Exactly. Install. Exactly. And- and this isn't, this isn't pushing us forward. This is actually, in a way, holding back. Now, there are things, if you work, if your job requires you to have Windows and those things, but look at Acid here. He was able to convince his company, which is something, of course, I, I work for a very, very large corporation, so it's a little harder, but this is something I've been trying to push as well. Um, but he's got his entire company to switch to Linux, so he's done an amazing job, and he says, hey, every once in a while, I just want to boot in a Windows Play game. It's fine, but I think overall, we should all be attempting to really do everything we do on our computers in Linux, if we're saying this is the best route, if we're saying this is the best operating system. And I think it is. And I think you can. I mean, I agree completely. I mean, the, the, the thing is that a lot of people look at it as we're, you know, we're joking around about, you know, the, the issue of the, the dual booting thing. And we don't really like necessarily care that people do it. It's just, if you don't have to do it, it would, and you kind of rely on it as like just kind of like uh, just a fallback. It does kind of put you're you're not going to put as much effort into Linux, and you're not going to learn as much, and you're not going to um, you know embrace it fully. It kind of does a, a negative thing where some people will say, "Well, I'm just going to use it for games every once in a while," but then they're just sitting in the Windows doing other things because, well, I'm already here. Yeah. And right. it kinda, exactly. Yeah, it kind of why, why reboot to Linux just to open Chrome or Firefox? I got Fire Chrome, Firefox right here, and then it, it's it becomes a slippery slope. I, that's you guys said it way better than I ever could. But that's that. What Ryan just kind of said, what you followed up with, is exactly how I feel. Like a little bit of a little bit of of playful, positive peer pressure is a good thing sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And and I will say that I recall in my journey in Linux, people when I in this actually spawned one of my videos which was people were telling me, oh, if you want a game, go into Windows. And this was some of the feedback I was getting from the Linux community because I was trying to do gaming on the channel. The game I was trying to do was Doom 2016. Back then, before it ran and Proton wasn't around, none of this was around, you had to do some hacks to get it to work in Wine. Well, as a brand new Linux user, I thought, if Linux is supposed to be as great as as everybody's saying, why would I boot back into Windows to run it? 
So I hacked around and I figured out how to get Doom to run. And that's one of the videos in the 30 days of Linux because I wanted to run it in Linux. I wanted to stay in Linux because that's what we're saying is the great thing there. And I think that as if, you know, I had a different approach, if I wasn't so into learning and kind of engaging, I may have thought, well, then why am I using Linux to begin with if everyone's just recommending dual boot to do what you want to do? You know, and I I won't call any, any specific people or, you know, out by name, but I'll tell you what, there is nothing that is more infuriating to me personally than people that that take a pl- that that use Linux as an excuse for a platform to come on to talk about. And there are people out there, don't kid yourselves, there are people out there that will do shows about Linux and they couldn't care less. The reality is Linux is where the market is. And so they look and they go, oh, there's a bunch of stooges that are willing to to to, you know, that I can sell advertising dollars or that I can speak to or whatever. And inside, after I get off the air, then I've got my, my MacBook or my iPad or my Microsoft Surface. And that's what I use day to day. And for me, that's what's good. But I'm going to go and tell you this is what you should use. And that I have a massive, massive problem with. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and, and it's gotten me in a little bit of trouble because I've, I've called a couple people out on that before. And, but, the, but the truth is, like, just be consistent. If, if, it's not, if, Linux isn't, if you don't think Linux is good enough for you, then say that. And then at least we all know where you're coming from and we can take that advice as it were. Because when I go on the air and I tell people, hey, you should use Linux and here's why I think it's the best operating system, you better believe that every machine I own is running Linux. I'm eating my dog food and I'm mm-hmm. living it day to day. So... If yeah. I can run my company on Linux and I and Red Hat can run their company on Linux, you probably can find a way to, to find your situation to run Linux, right? Yeah, exactly. absolutely. But Acid, thank you so much for bringing it up because I think it's a good discussion overall. I think it's one of those things that needed context to Michael's point. And we certainly aren't out there trying to discourage people. If you have to dual boot because of some you know, software that you just have to use, then, then do it. But that doesn't mean we're not going to cut up and try to push the needle and encourage people not to a little bit. And that doesn't mean we're not going to make jokes just to make fun of Michael, which is primarily what this show's about. So right. it feels that way sometimes. <laughs> so we want to hear from you, our listeners. Send in your favorite Linux software or tips and tricks. That's what we're looking for in your emails. We want to know, we've, we've kind of gone through a lot of the tips and tricks that Michael and Noah and Zeb and I utilize that we think about, but we want to know from the community, what are some tips and tricks and things that you've learned? What is some software that we've not covered or done a spotlight on that you think deserves to be in the spotlight? Send that to comments at destinationlinux.org. We cannot wait to see it. We love your comments. Now, we can't respond to every single email that comes in because there is a lot, but no, we do literally read every single one. Uh, and we will pick the ones that we can to put into the show. And it may be weeks before it gets in the show, but eventually we'll get it uh, in there. Uh, If it's short and concise, keep it a couple paragraphs, and generally we can get it included in the show. We love hearing from you. So send your comments to comments at destinationlinux.org. Destination Linux has gone through a lot of changes in the past year, and we recently kicked off an interview segment where we're doing many interviews with you, the hosts. And finally, this is the fourth and last uh, mini host interview. We're going to be talking to Noah to learn some about his journey and passions. So, Noah, the first question we have to ask is, when did you first hear and start using Linux? So it's, it's interesting. Most really big things have a super simple story in the beginning, right? My dad always told me that the people who really understood what they were doing with computers, the people who really understood technology and companies who really wanted their technologies to last and, and, and work well, used Linux. And he maybe didn't know very much about Linux, but what he did know, uh, he got right. And that was just that Linux was, 
the thing to use if you wanted rock solid stability and security. And so from as far back as I can remember, even though he had never demonstrated Linux to me or showed it to me, I grew up with this deep respect for this operating system called Linux because I understood that someday I could play with this operating system and it was the best operating system out there. Nice. Nice. So what was your first job in IT and how did that lead you to learning about Linux? When I was 13 years old, I got a job at a help desk and the computers, I, I got so tired of computers slowing down and, and having this, what I call the windows timeout. And it didn't matter what you installed in the computer. Didn't matter how you treated it. Didn't matter how you maintained it. Eventually the computer would just hit this limit where it would just, die and then you would have to reinstall the operating system and i got to a point where i just i hit my my lifetime limit of how many times i could reinstall windows <laughs> and i just i could not bring myself to reinstall the windows operating system another time and so i told my boss i said you've got to get me out of the there was some other things that led into it as well but i said you've got to get me out of the help desk or i'm gonna quit because i just can't do this anymore and so i got moved to the server deployment team now the server deployment team still had no concept of Linux. It was all running Windows. In fact, it was running Windows 2000. And anybody that worked on Windows 2000 might remember a cute little bug that it had where it would assign the same IP address to multiple <laughs> clients, which is, that's kind of a problem when your job is a DHCP server, right? Yeah. Uh, and so we just had this uh, essentially thing where we would restart these Windows servers and they were all on a reboot schedule to make sure that they, that they didn't crap out on us. And I was I was going around and I was deploying uh, this EMR software that was written in a framework called Lotus Notes Domino. Oh, I and remember Lotus Notes. Do you have you used it? Yeah. yeah. It has. I have a love hate relationship with it because in in some ways it is such bad software, and in other ways I worked with it for so long that there's literally nothing I couldn't make that software do. And uh, so I, I that's uh, that's effectively where I where I got to. Uh, with my job was I knew that Windows was bad and I knew that Linux was out there and was better and I just hadn't really put two and two together. I knew Windows had problems and I knew that Linux was a better option. I wasn't sure how to put connect A to B. I had a friend that worked at the same company and he gave me a copy of Mandrake Linux and I installed it on my machine and it was a terrible experience. Um, I remember, here's the thing, when it first booted up, and this is how sick of Windows I was, I saw the little X cursor, and I, to this day, I remember thinking to myself, wow, Linux is amazing. Look at how innovative even the cursor is. It's an <laughs> X instead of a pointer. That makes so much more sense, right? Didn't make any more sense. <laughs> it, didn't. it was just something different. It was something other than Windows, and I was so thirsty to have something different, something that was innovative and new and exciting and something that I could play with and that would you know, work, that I, I was excited by the fact that the cursor had an X. The problem was that was the best part of the whole experience because everything after that went downhill. I couldn't get networking to work. I couldn't get my modem to work. PPP was a royal pain the entire time I, I use Linux, honestly. My display wasn't working correctly. It wouldn't show the full resolution. My sound wasn't working. Uh, videos wouldn't play. I couldn't read my floppy disks. And then I hit the lowest point, which was when I inserted my system restore disk to go back to Windows 98. The Windows 98 restore disk couldn't read X2 or X3 or whatever it was at the time. And so I couldn't even reinstall Windows. And so I was left with a text editor, an X cursor, and nothing else. And I, it just, to me, 
I swore I would never use Linux again. <laughs> that is so interesting. I am so happy Windows 98 messed up and wouldn't let you go back <laughs> because we may not have you here today if you were able to get that installed at that point. So obviously you figured all of this out eventually. So how did that impact you launching the Ask Noah show? Yeah, it unquestionably did. Uh, because I, I had no one. I had no support. I had no help. And you have to remember, this is back in the you know mid-90s. There was no real internet. There, the internet existed, of course, but I had to go to my dad's office to be able to access the internet. And even then, it was there were bulletin board services and stuff like that. There was no instant help. It's certainly not instant help that a 12-year-old could figure out and get access to. And right. so it's kind of, I felt like I was on my own. And I, I guess I didn't know it at the time, but that really set me on a path that would eventually lead to ask the Ask Noah show and destination Linux, because I was, I guess I was being groomed from that moment on that. If I ever got myself out of that mess, that I was going to find a way to help other people so that nobody else uh, would get back there and, and wind up back to where I was. And so, and so, yeah, I, it was a, it was a long struggle, but I, I did find my way back out of it. Nice. So how did you end up coming back to Linux then? It was actually at school. A kid gave me a copy of Red Hat Linux, friend of mine, and I took it home and uh, put a different hard drive in this time because I'd learn, learn better and put a different hard drive in and installed uh, Red Hat Linux. And like out of the box, I was elated because networking worked and I could go back to Windows, which is the very first thing I tried. Uh, my sound worked, display worked. I had a bunch of applications. I remember at that point, and it was actually, I've got the, the 5.2 box uh, nice. It came in an actual nice. box and it had a manual, which was really great. And when you first put the disk in, one of the things it would ask is, do you want to install KDE or GNOME? And I remember asking my friend, well, what do you use? Do you use KDE or GNOME? And, and his answer to me was, well, KDE is kind of like the imitation of Windows. So that's what people use uh, when they first get into Linux. And then once they learn how to use Linux, then they switch over to GNOME, which is the real desktop for Linux. And that answer is comical to me now for a number of different reasons, but that set me on a path of GNOME for years and years and years. I used GNOME too because I thought that was, that, you know, some 14-year-old kid at school told me that's what all the real Linux people use. <laughs> and so that's what I started using. Uh, and, and, I, and I stuck with Red Hat and used every release they had until they did the split where Red Hat split off and went to Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And then they had Fedora for the desktop, you know, workstation uh, you know, community base. And I inst immediately installed Fedora Core 1, loved it, had a great experience. And I have used every single version of Fedora since then. Um, so, and I took, I went back to my job then and I said, I noticed that Domino Server ran on Linux. So we had a policy back at the, the company that I worked to, a policy that I've continued to this day with AltaSpeed, which was uh, what they call professional development. And the professional development policy was you could take any piece of hardware that the company owned and you could take it home, do whatever you wanted to it. As long as you filled out a form, got your supervisor's permission. And if the machine ever had to be returned, you had 30, they, they gave you 30 days and you had to be, you had to have it back. Uh, and so as long as you could commit to all of that, you could take any piece of equipment home. So I took this like $10,000 server that we had that was going to go out to a client and I put Red Hat on it and uh, installed Domino and it ran for 30 days with no problems. And I took it back and showed my boss and I was like, you got to check this thing out. This is really cool. This thing, this Linux thing, I was playing with it and I got Domino to run for 30 days to produce 2000 server, barely makes it a week. Isn't that great? And he's like, it doesn't run for 30 days. So we stuck it up in our server room at this company 
And the thing ran for like three months, four months. Wow. And eventually my boss tells me, he goes, all right, listen, you're going to put it into production. And I said, production, <laughs> production. I don't know anything about this. I just inserted a disc and read a guide and I, I followed the little install thing and it somehow worked, but I don't really know how it works. And he's like, yeah, it's going to work. Three days later, we had, we had Red Hat servers in production. Uh, and me, I'll, at, I'm probably 15, 16 years old at this point. And so I think I know everything, but you know, really don't really understand anything about Linux. And to their credit, that only lasted a couple of months before they went, okay, we need to get this guy some training. Uh, and so they paid for everything. They sent me off to Red Hat and um, sent me there for their full three-week course or whatever wow. it was and learned from the ground up. Interestingly enough, what I tell people when they say, do I need to get trained? What I tell people is when I went to training, I thought I was a Linux idiot. I thought I didn't know anything. I thought people were going to make fun of me and that I was going to find out how stupid all of the things I was doing because I'd found all these little handicaps to, to what I thought were handicaps to get myself around all of these issues. You know what I learned when I went to this training? That there's a lot of different ways to do things in Linux and they're all pretty much valid with a couple of exceptions. They're all valid ways to go about it. Really what I walked out of uh, the training with, obviously I picked a couple things up. You can't help but do that. But what I walked away with other than a certification as a Red Hat system administrator for, for RHEL 6, I walked out of there under, with an understanding that I knew more than I thought I knew. And it just gave me confidence to go out back into the field and say, okay, now I know I can do the same thing I've always been doing, but now I know I can do it because this is, this is what Red Hat says that we should do. And I, I, and th th I just, I went nuts. Uh, we installed Red Hat on all of the, not only servers, but we went and installed them all on the workstations. Uh, and so we were a 100% Linux shop. Every client we went to, it was Linux on the workstation, Linux on the servers. And, uh, you know, all of my coworkers got into it and, and, and things were moving forward. Then the company took a switch. There was a, financial thing that occurred and different things got sold and, and it, d different direction. Anyway, uh, a bit, some people that sit behind desks with, with really fancy suits and very big checkbooks looked up and went, yeah, I don't know what this Linux thing is about. The rest of the world use windows. We're going to windows. And so just uh, tell all the it people that uh, they're going to be deploying windows now and um, uh, tell all the clients that have Linux. Uh, we don't do that anymore. And so I looked up in December 29, 2009 and I said, you know, Look at all these clients that are out there that all have Linux boxes and that company just told them to go pound sand. I don't really want to go back to Windows. Everything works great in Linux. I spend all my time moving things forward. I'm not refixing things, which is all I ever did on Windows. I don't want to go back to that. And so on December 2000, in December 9th of 2009, I quit my job and I filed the paperwork with the state to launch AltaSpeed Technologies. And, you know, uh, this year we're celebrating uh, our 10th anniversary and a shameless self-plug, I'm proud to say that AltaSpeed Technology has become the area's leader in Linux and open source software. And we've, quite frankly, we've established ourselves as the go-to paid Linux support in the community. So we have NextCloud instances that we spin up or update for people when people want an alternative to Dropbox, like C-File, and they don't want to, they don't have the time or the expertise to set it up, but they also don't want Dropbox to have all their data. They call us when a resort in Vancouver, British Columbia wants enterprise-grade Wi-Fi and doesn't want the hassle of setting that up. They know that they can give us a call. AltaSpeed isn't just a shingle on the door, but we're a living, breathing part of the Linux community. And we'll do what we're contractually obligated to do for our clients. And sometimes that means NDAs and those kinds of things. But any work that we do in-house is all open source and on our, available on our Git, GitLab page. So if we're funding a project, that code is available back to the community. And I'm proud of that. And I'm proud of what we've given to the community and what we've been able to build. Because it certainly wasn't just me. It was a lot of people that were involved um, but it's, we've been a Linux-focused company from day one, 
And it's yeah, that has only gotten more cemented with time. I find your story really fascinating because, uh, as I mentioned in, in my interview about growing up in a family business, when you see a business launch like I did from beginning to end, it's a very scary process. Oh, it's yeah. not like all of a sudden you're flooded with, well, maybe in some people's lives, but I think most people's lives, when you start a new business, you have to really struggle. You have to really work to get those clients. It's a grind so, for sure. When, yeah. To when, your- to Go your ahead. point, in December 2009, I filed a uh, state for ultra speed technologies. Now, mind you, in December, I have zero clients. I know they're out there. I know that I can probably approach them, but they still, uh, none of that has actually done, right? right? February of 2010, I find out my wife is pregnant. I don't have a job. We don't have income. And now I have a baby on the way. And, uh, you know, people ask me, well, should I quit my job and start a company? No. Don't do that. <laughs> Start your company. And then when the, when you get the boat close enough to the dock, step over. Don't do what I did and jump into the lake and hope a boat comes, you know, floating by. That's a, that's a, it was the dumbest thing I ever did, really. I mean, it worked <laughs> out, but it was a, it was a long struggle. The first couple of years where they were rough because you don't know if you're going to eat. Yeah. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a huge, massive risk, but at the end it's, it's, you have to have that, um, you know, that drive to keep pushing forward. I know in my dad's case, he was writing software and then by the time we were getting to the point where he and he was doing that out of the house, but the point where we opened that shop, I remember how scary it was for him because now all of a sudden you have another two or three thousand dollars a month just for rent that you have to cover on top of everything else. And when that store opened and you open the doors and you put the sign in, you pay all this money and then you sit because nobody's walking in right away. So then you start your advertising and pushing and stuff. And so when it finally takes off, it's an amazing feeling. But that journey, kind of like the end of our show, is something you look back on, I'm sure, very fondly compared to now where things are a little easier to get clients when you're established. What I, what I always tell people when people ask me, they say, what, you know, I get, I get this question a lot. What does success look like? What does success look like? How do I know? When I'm, and I always tell people in rear view mirror hindsight being 2020, success for me, it wasn't a linear climb. Everybody has this idea that you climb up and then, you know, your business grows or whatever. To me, it, it's an up and down thing. And it looks more like a gigantic pile of failures that I'm standing on top of. Mm-hmm. And that's not, that's not glorious and it doesn't sound cool. And it, it's certainly not going to make any sort of marketing material. Uh, and I probably would never admit that to a client, but the truth is that's what success looked like is you try something and then you fail and then you learn from it. And then you try something again and then you fail and then you learn from it. And eventually you do the Edison thing where I've learned 99 ways not to make a light bulb. And that led me to the one way to make a light bulb. Uh, but when you look behind you, it's a pile of carnage and it's yep. terrible. Yep. Well, I mean, that's actually the, the most important thing that anybody who wants to start a business or be an entrepreneur, you have to be not necessarily comfortable, but you have to be willing to accept failure. Because if you can't if yes. you can't take no for an answer or you can't just handle when something goes terribly wrong, then you shouldn't be running your own business because it will and they will. Like that it will happen often. And you have to like just accept it as that that is the norm. The success is basically sitting. Success is when you're standing on the on the mountain of failure. Do you know how many people made fun of the idea of starting a? Because you have to remember, back in 2009, Linux was in a very different state than it is today. Do you know how many people thought it was ridiculous to start an open source Linux company in Grand Forks, North Dakota? The amount of people that, <laughs> that I mean, the uh, you know, it's funny now because you know, I mean, I, I can't say this without being boastful, but it's it's funny now when you look at the checkbook of AltaSpeed versus the checkbook of the proprietary, you know, alternatives. Right. I, I mean, it just, the, the, the industry has gone very much, very clearly one direction and it's only gaining steam. Uh, but 
but yeah, it was, it was a long road of people laughing at you and saying, oh, that, that's never going to work. You're never going to be able to do that. that that's ridiculous. Who's going to pay you to install Firefox when we've got the Internet Explorer, right? That, that <laughs> joke didn't age well. <laughs> Neither so, the Internet Explorer. So another interesting thing is you mentioned using Fedora uh, back then, but I don't remember you talking about Fedora recently. So have you moved on to other distros since then and don't go back to Fedora? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I always tell people any Linux distro you use is a good distro. Whatever it is that has Nix at the end of it, that's the good distro to be using. Give, I, given my, I've given my fair share of hate to this idea of choices in the Linux community because I think we have a far bigger problem being divided and our resources being split than we have with a lack of choices in the open source and Linux world. But put me on any distro you like. And because of that choice and because of that freedom, I will find a desktop environment that I'm comfortable with and I can get my job done. I will find the applications that I'm comfortable with that I can get my, my job done. And you know what? Worst case scenario, thanks to the incredible, powerful projects like Broche, at the end of the day, I can drop down to a terminal and I'm still able to get my job done. Doesn't matter what desktop I'm on. Doesn't matter what distro I'm on. Primarily these days I'm using Ubuntu and that's not because it's, it's my natural preference. I'm still a Fedora guy at heart, but the rest of the world is using Ubuntu. And so when people call in, people want to know how to fix something or if I'm going to host a show where I'm going to explain to people how to fix something, I better know how to do that thing in Ubuntu because nine out of 10 times, that's the operating system that they're going to use. So as a function of business and as a function of being a good member of the open source community as a function of being a good radio host that hosts a show about desktop Linux and who hosts a podcast about people who are enthusiastic and passionate about Linux, I feel like I, I'm required to run Arch and Ubuntu. And so I've learned to embrace those in addition to my Fedora workstation, which still sits at home. And you of course, Arch, you get a pass. I'm still on servers, I'm still <laughs> running CentOS. <laughs> nice. Naturally. I mean, that kind of makes me have to think about, well, I should probably try out the Ubuntu GNOME again. Cause, or Arch, yeah. Well, I mean, sure. who doesn't use Arch? I mean, of course. <laughs> uh, as an advocate, you spend a lot of time selling people on using Linux. Because when you talk about getting uh, businesses to use Linux and you convincing them to use Linux and open source and everything, and also convincing people to try out Linux, what would you say is the most compelling reason to use Linux? I work for... Uh... The, the company that I worked for is a medical software company, and I watched them spend $50,000 per software license on I don't know how many hundreds of machines or thousands of machines. Only two, four years later, watched the software company go belly up, and all of a sudden, that $50,000 software license couldn't be activated because the servers were offline, right? And I watched that happen firsthand, and I sat in the boardroom when I told all of the fancy people in suits with big checkbooks that it was a bad idea to spend that amount of money on software that could be shut down if the company went out of business. Nobody listened to me. And so it, they ended up losing a bunch of money. And I contrast that situation, or I contrast that story with a time where I went to System76 with no equipment and we needed to do a live broadcast. And we took one of the System76 machines and went to Radio Shack and bought a webcam and a USB microphone. And in about... 10 minutes, we had a working broadcast system up and running. And the reason that was possible was because all of the software was in the repositories. All of the mm -hmm. operating systems were available as a download for an ISO off of the internet. We didn't need any activation. We didn't need any software license. We didn't need anybody's permission 
We could just use the tools we wanted to use. And I look at that and I think the the pure power in that and the freedom to not be afraid of your computer. I deal with clients all the time that are afraid of their computers because if anything crashes, it will take hours to get all of my software back on there. You know what? My buddy Ryan has a script that puts all his software on his computer. He don't need, he doesn't take hours to do it. Are you kidding? Like right. it, it becomes enjoyable for me to reload my machine because I get a fresh start. And I get to try things a different way. To me, that's the most exciting thing about Linux. Yeah, I, I love that. And it's, it just struck a chord with me because that was one of the major aha moments for Linux with me was that not having to go through and search for the licenses for all of these software programs. I mean, it's just such a pain. And if you've ever done, uh, you know, I've done thousands of building you know, of computers, installs of Windows, especially when I was working with my dad and now for a big company, just thousands. And every time, of course, with a corporation, a lot of the keys are built in, but that changes and they switch the rules. And then you're having to sit on support lines because the keys aren't working that are supposed to work because they're tied to another computer. And then you've got to manually talk to this thing that never understands the key that you're giving it to ask how many times you've used it. And all of this trouble that people go through in hours wasted that they don't even think about fighting for and finding licenses to basically turn on software that you've already paid for. It's so obnoxious and it's such a free moment in Linux when you get to experience just installing all the software you want without ever having this type of license in. Yeah, it's actually kind of funny because you you're talking about it. Like I've been using Linux for so long that I recently had to help with someone's computer and they were using Windows. Um, and they had to get some kind of software or whatever. And it turned out I had to try to do this licensing thing. And it's the first time I've been, I've ever done, not ever, but the first time I've done any kind of licensing dealing with that stuff in like a decade. And it was like, I I forgot how infuriating it was. Mm -hmm. And then when I did it, I was like, why is this still a thing? Why does these things still exist? This is just nonsense. And like, as soon as I was like, okay, here's the, here's the option. You can use Linux, or here's a number of someone who'll help you with Windows. Yeah. <laughs> you know, here's the thing. You know, people joke about stuff like that, but straight up, I, you know, and that has gotten me in trouble because I've gotten to a point where I said, listen, I am just at a point in life where I don't need the money, I don't need the clients, and I don't have the time to solve your Windows issues. And frankly, you know, just being honest with you, there are people that are better at it than me. So if you want somebody to help you with Windows, go find somebody that's passionate about Windows. I don't know if that person exists, but, you know, I'm sure <laughs> maybe find some, somebody somewhere that's like, yay, Windows 10. I can't, I can't wait for 1810 to get released. Yay, the, telemetry. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's great because it tracks all the applications you open. That's, that's fantastic. What a great feature that Microsoft has given. <laughs> I'm sure those kind of people are out there. Hire them. Uh, but I'm more interested in, in Linux, and that's really what I excel at. So that's what that's where I'm, that's what I'm good at. I love it. So you've done a number of different shows on many different media networks, including, and one of my favorite things is terrestrial radio. So you're getting across even people who don't listen to podcasts and things like that. Some messages across uh, for two different groups. What do you like best though about Destination Linux when you're thinking about all the different uh, media you've done in the past? We kind of touched on this a little bit at the, at the beginning of the episode, but for me, it's the fact that Destination Linux is Linux first and everything else second. And everybody that I work with, all four of you, all three of you guys and all four of us, we all care about Linux and we care about the Linux community. And I never, I never feel like when I come in here that I'm sitting down to do a show. I never feel like there's this show face that I have to put on or there's a, there's a mantra or personality I have to be. I can just sit down and have fun with friends 
for hours and it it doesn't feel like doing a show and, and that's not a knock on ask no i love doing my my radio program but it feels like a show i know i'm doing a show there's a clock there's a time when i have to start there's a time when we have to end uh, there are other people that are that are are waiting and they get upset if things are late and and that's been my experience in 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 doing these kind of productions every every other production i've ever worked with there's been somebody that uh, that that puts the production first and 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 everything else comes second. And with Destination Linux, it's the first time that I feel like I've really been able to just explore Linux for the purpose of exploring Linux. And I never feel like I have to fight anyone to use Linux. Like all of the tools that we use are support Linux first. If they don't support Linux, then we don't even consider it. Um, and so for years, the wisdom was that you couldn't produce a a show on Linux, editing on Linux, produced on Linux, published on Linux, and turns out that's exactly what Destination Linux has done. Coincidentally, it's the best Linux video show available, and it's all being done under Linux. So can I say Linux enough times? That's what I like (laughs) about Destination Linux. No, I, I love that feedback. I think that's that's interesting to hear. You know, this show, one of the things I love about it is that it's it's off the cuff, meaning we do a show, you know, I, I write the shows for the notes and things we're going to cover, but I have no idea what Michael's going to say. I have no idea what you're going to say. I have no idea what Zeb's going to say. The feelings and thoughts that you hear on this show are exactly natural. They, they come at the right. moment of us talking and discussing it. So that allows a lot of freedom and it also allows a lot of people to... Uh, point out our mistakes sometimes but it allows a ton of freedom for us just to be able to say off the cuff this is how i feel about it and let it ride where it may and i think that's a unique thing about the show as well yeah i agree i think that the, the best thing about it is that we're, we're also not only are we we're all fans of linux and we all like we're, we're focused on making sure that this show is the best podcast for like especially video podcast like the best conversational podcast about linux that we can make we also are just fans of the topic in general. So it's not really, we're not really making a show in the sense of producing right. a show. We're just, we're just having fun and enjoying the experience of creating the show. And, and it's more in the sense of we're having a conversation. We're, um, we're just talking about Linux. We're talking about what we enjoy. And at the same time, we're letting everybody else participate in that show with sending emails and, you know, community talking in the telegram group and all that stuff and having a conversation with us. It's more of like, we're just creating the show because we want to. We want we want to also help people learn and experience Linux and, and enjoy it themselves. If the four of us went out for coffee and set a camera up, that would be Destination Linux. Like if we weren't doing a show, we just, <laughs> yeah, set, a co- we just set a camera up and just sat down to have coffee with one another, uh, that would be a Destination Linux episode. The only thing that it would lack is we would probably make less fun of Michael because that's done purely for the the show but other than that though the rest of the show would be the same because that's just what we like doing and to me that's the most enjoyable thing because i I, i'd not experienced that before and and for me that's that's a lot of fun very cool awesome Uh, so what do you hope to accomplish as a host on dl i want to get more people involved with linux i would like it if people watch the show and listen to the kind of serious conversations that we have about playful banter about filthy dual booting and listen to that and go you know what Maybe that's me. Maybe that's me that that is making excuses for not using Linux. And maybe I can try it here. Maybe I should give this thing a shot. Maybe I should follow in Ryan's footsteps and try 30 days with Linux. I want people to know that the I can't use Linux is doesn't have to be an excuse that you can use Linux if you want to. And there's a community of people 
that are more than happy to help you usher you through some of the problems that you're going to encounter. And you're going to encounter problems and it doesn't matter what operating system you're on. You're always going to have problems. You're always going to have battles. You just have to choose what those battles are going to be. Mm -hmm. Is it going to be trying to get a particular piece of software to run in wine or is it going to be getting a particular piece of software activated? Either way, you're going to struggle with the problem. It's just you got to pick which one you want to fight. And then I would like to see, I guess I would like to see people using Linux as a choice, right? Because one of the things that kind of scares me is when I see things come out like Chromebooks, it's great and all that it has a Linux kernel, but it's not people choosing to run Linux. It's people running Linux by default. And I think that's a, that's a fine intermediary step. If we get to a point where people go and walked into Best Buy and bought some computers that ran Ubuntu and came home and went, wow, that experience is really great. I think that would be a great intermediary step but I really want to get to a point where people actively choose to run Linux, where they're making a conscious decision about their operating system, uh, whatever that is. And to anybody that says, you don't understand me, you don't understand my company, what I would tell you is Speed Technologies has seven uh, people that work for us and all of us use Linux. In fact, it is literally a job requirement. Red Hat, <laughs> Red Hat has thousands of people that work for them. They issue you a laptop with <laughs> Linux pre-installed. It's literally a job requirement. If you're anywhere between seven people and thousands of people, you can probably make Linux work. Now, you may not be in an administrative place where you can actually implement a policy, and so the, you, it might be a policy that stops you, but as far as the, actually getting the technology to work, it's there. It can work. And the, the folks at Destination Linux and my show, the Ask Noah show, is designed to help people get there. Love it. So besides your profession, what other projects are you a part of? So obviously, the, the, I, I host a weekly talk radio show where we take calls and questions and comments about Linux. Uh, we opened up our company knowledge base. So that is open up to the community. So people want to know, how does UltaSpeed deploy a virtual uh, server host? We have that documentation is available. And you can see the exact guides that our technicians use when they go out to a client. Wow. All of that stuff is, is, is documented and all of it's open. The only things, parts that aren't open in the knowledge base are obviously things that contain credential stuff that, you know, would be... You know, irresponsible to open because right. we, you know, we agree and we believe in passwords, as it were. Um, <laughs> we uh, we launched a, a video channel called Mind Drip Media, where we're going around and interviewing people about Linux content, and we're publishing that out separate from Ask Noah, so that I can actually I can get back to actually making video content interview style, which is something and tutorial stuff that I like doing. Um, we have a podcast platform that we have launched that we are allowing people to use all of the facilities that we have built to do that I'm using for Destination Linux and Ask Noah. And somebody who has something to say, but maybe doesn't have a budget or the time uh, to, or the expertise to set that up, we're going to give them the platform that they need to be able to produce the content they want to produce. Uh, Steve Ovens from Red Hat has teamed up with us and he is working with us to make essentially Red Hat certification tutorials, but in a way that you have never seen before. Because the problem with traditional tutorials, the problem with traditional uh, Linux education media is you feel like you're sitting through a lecture. You feel like you're sitting through yes. a class and that's yes. boring and nobody wants to do that. You know what people like to do? They like to sit down and they like to have fun on their computer and they like to try things and play with things mm -hmm. and get involved in things. And you know what would be awesome? If a video series existed out there where you could sit down and play with this stuff and just and and have fun learning and then when you got done just so happened you had all of the skills you needed to sit down and pass the RHCSA so we're working on creating that because we think that's going that's to be amazing. a very it's going to be a valuable you know give back to the community of course that's all going to be free you know there's nothing we're not charging for anything we're not trying to make any money we're just trying to give back to the community i fully believe that the reason that i have gotten to where i've gotten 
with Linux and open source is because the community allowed me to prosper. And so I feel like it is my responsibility to give back. We're also launching a distro review site. Uh, we're essentially trying to make the Amazon review site for Linux distros. That's been a project that we actually started one of the very first weeks on Ask Noah, and it's been, we've been working on it ever since. We're finally about to the point where we're able to launch that. I think that's going to be a valuable tool for the Linux community as well. So those are kind of some of the things that we're working on. Of course, you know, ideas are, you know, are a dime a dozen. And so we kind of have to filter through what ones of those that we're going to do. But whatever it is, it's certainly going to, it, it's certainly going to involve Destination Linux and Ask Noah. And, and we're going to make sure that rising tides, the entire community gets to prosper. Love it. Nice. Um, but what are some contributions you've made to the Linux community outside of this podcast or like podcasts in general? I don't. So anybody that, so me personally, I guess I probably don't do a lot. We have a company policy where Altaspeed Technologies donates to projects that we either use in-house or if we bill a client for a particular service and that service involved a open source project, we will bill the client for the open source project as if they were paying for a normal piece of software. And then we simply donate that money uh, oh, back to the open source software because, awesome. you know, and really all, all we're doing honestly is, is collecting the money that is, that is due for a, for a company that produced a valuable product that a company is willing to pay for it. We're just facilitating that. It, the only difference is uh, we're just not asking it, if you want us to do, listen, you want to go get the open source project and do it yourself. That's fine. If you want us to do it, part of the agreement for us to come in and do that thing is you're going to have to support the project that you're using because that's the only way this works. Uh, and so, and so that's, that's how I give back or try to give back or support uh, the open source community financially. Of course, like I say, all the other things I try to give back in, in the form of content because it's what I enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's my, that's the way I'm most valuable to the community is, is content. Nice. So we've learned a lot about you. I've learned a ton about you in this interview alone, but tell us one more thing people probably who maybe have been following you for a longer time don't know about you. I love water skiing. I don't know if I've ever talked about that on the air before. I don't think I ever mentioned it on last. I don't think I ever mentioned it on Ask Noah. So I guess Destination Linux would be the place I break it. I, I absolutely love water skiing. I, I've been skiing since I was six or seven years old. Wow. I started on two skis. I have a, a very nice slalom ski. And uh, during the summer, pretty much Thursday, I leave town and I'm gone Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And I'm gone at the lake all day. Uh, obviously, during the day, open the laptop up and get some work done, but then the rest of the day out on the lake and water skiing, and I, I can't get enough of it. Isn't but, it really hard to hold a laptop while you're water skiing? <laughs> now? You know, it used to be more difficult, but thanks to things like the GPD Pocket, it has gotten much <laughs> easier because you can put it in your life vest, you get up, and then as you're going around, you just hang on and Nice. Perfect. All right. <laughs> nice. I might have to get into that. This is actually kind of funny because you know, it's like, you're not sure if you've ever talked about it before. Uh, I've, me and Noah have known each other for years, and this is the first time I've ever heard him talking about water skiing. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. I, I, don't, I, don't, I really don't talk. Part of it is it is so polar opposite of anything to do with tech. You know, like it's the very opposite. Like it, it, there's no internet at the lake. There's no electronics at the lake. Like it doesn't work its way into any story whatsoever. And you know, the other part, Michael, is it's not like you've ever opened a conversation with, so the last time I was outdoors, I did X, but I could follow <laughs> up with, and then I, I could mean, say, oh, the last time I was outdoors, here's what I did. Like, that conversation has never occurred between us. And that's it's fair. Like it never will. That's fair. <laughs> 
Well, anyway, we hope this segment has uh, helped you get to know the host of the show a little bit better. Uh, thank you very much, Noah, for all the work you're doing in the Linux community, as well as the work you were doing on uh, the Destination Linux and what you do with spreading the, your love and passion for Linux and, with this podcast and on your own podcast. So, um, you know, just and throughout the entire community in general. So just thank you very much for, uh, you know, taking the time to do this this interview with us. Yep. Hey, Bet, thanks for having me. So next on to some distro news, and I found this really interesting because I hadn't heard of this distro before, is Sabion 19.03 was released, and the team at Sabion have basically created a Gentoo-based distribution here. So Gentoo, which I've done the installation for uh, one time, <laughs> um, uh, is kind of complex to install, although kind of like Arch, if you follow the wiki and things, it's, it's not impossible by any stretch of the imagination, but it's, it's a little more involved than, say, installing an Ubuntu. It takes a lot of work there. So they have basically done some work to make Gentoo a much easier, well, it's based on Gentoo, a much easier approachable distribution for you to utilize, but still enjoy some of the advantages that Gentoo has. So their goal is to give users a wide number of applications ready for use in a self-configured operating system. Version 19.03 has some interesting enhancements in here, like a new build infrastructure. They switched to uh, Dracut from the Intram FS generation. They have full disk encryption support, installer switch from Anaconda to Calamari's, and support for 32-bit UEFI. They are on the latest kernel, well, not the latest kernel, but I guess a newer kernel version for them, which is 4.20, which is nice because that means that you get the all of the AMD support and things built into 4.20 plus. So if you were having any issues or wanted to use, say, even the FreeSync ability with uh, AMD or NVIDIA, you now have that ability in the 4.20 kernel plus. So it includes all of that. One of the things I really liked seeing in this update notes is that they're starting a new wiki page. Uh, out there. So they're going to be doing a lot more work on documentation around their distribution and making sure that uh, people can get uh, into it easier and understand what's going on. I imagine it'd be similar to kind of like a ArchWiki that they're trying to build up here. And they've also opened up a Patreon. And this is one of those things, while it doesn't seem like big news, I really wish a lot more people would have a, <laughs> would include ways to support them in their software that are easy to find so that when, you know, Noah and I talk both and, and Michael, you as well about how we give to these different software programs that we utilize or that we enjoy, but sometimes it's nearly impossible to find a way to donate to them or it's hidden within their website uh, deeply. So I'm glad they're providing ways for people to donate back to these projects and also, this looks like a very interesting way to kind of get into Gentoo. And it reminded me of how if you start in a Manjaro or a Arco Linux or one of the Arch-based distros, it's going to allow you to learn some of the ins and outs of the distro without having to go through the full installation per, you know, of Arch first. Yeah. So you kind of learn how the package managers work. You kind of learn how, um, you know, the instructions work, the wiki works without having to be stuck on a screen where you have no operating system at all. Then as you get more comfortable with that and you do your first Arch install, now, now it's much easier for you to utilize because you're just learning that one portion, which is the installation. And now you already know how to use the package management system, how to do updates, all of that type of stuff. And so this looks like an interesting way of getting into Gen 2 uh, for people, have you heard about this distro before, Michael? Yeah, I've been I've used it before. Uh, it's 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 interesting because it, you're you're right. It's basically like a stepping stone distro to uh, getting used to using Gentoo. So I've actually used Gentoo before, um, and I did use 
the uh, Sabion or something like it as an introductory thing. And then I went to directly to Gentoo. But in some cases, I think that this is a good option because it gives you, the, not only is it a stepping stone, but it also gives you the ability to to kind of experience Gentoo, but at the same time, uh, an easier approach as well because you get the binaries and you can do the source code com compilation if you wanted to, whereas Gentoo is a very... Uh, a very specific, unique structure of like uh, how they set up everything. Like their their ported system is very unique to Linux, and their you know the way they do their e builds is very is very specific. So like there's, it's it's a good way to do uh, to get used to using Gentoo in the same way that Interagos and Manjaro are good for getting used to do is Arch. So I agree completely there, and I do think that Sebion has a lot of good benefits to it if you are interested in the Gentoo stuff because they do a lot of interesting approaches. Like they still have 32-bit UEFI, and they still uh, they do also like uh, uh, you know non-system D type stuff. Um, you know, it's it's really uh, it gives you a lot of options if you wanted to, while at the same time not requiring you to learn everything that you have to learn with Gentoo. Because like you said, you installed it one time, and I installed it one time just to say that I installed it and that it worked. And then I, and then I don't want to keep doing that because it's a lot. It's a lot of work to maintain uh, yeah. you know some a, a distro that's source based like that. So you know, giving an option like you could, you know, use Sabion to do a stepping stone, then learn all the, you know, the, the, the in-depth stuff with Gentoo. You can still go back to Sabion if you wanted to, to make it, you know, a lot easier to do it. Yep. So Noah, have you ever utilized Sabion or Gentoo in the past? I have. I've utilized both. I, I utilize Sabion just as a, as a review. Uh, Gentoo is, is interesting because I have a very close friend of mine that is a Gentoo zealot. Like everything he does is with Gentoo. And one of the things that him and I have talked about doing for years is I would, I really want to go and spend a week with him and have him show me why he believes Gentoo is the best distribution out there. Because when I use it, I have very similar experience to what you and Michael are talking about. It seems very cumbersome to me. It feels very um, basic and, and and I feel like I'm going back in time, technology-wise, uh, when I use that as compared to Ubuntu. But the, the, this gentleman, he use he's very very Linux knowledgeable, right? Like he can bounce around in Fedora and Arch and and Ubuntu and and all those things. And yet he keeps coming back to Gentoo. And I I keep telling myself there has to be a reason why. Um, and so I think that that's kind of where Sabian fits in. I think there is a group of people out there that really believe that is a that is a better way to go. I don't have the answer as to why that is, but I'm hoping to learn it someday. Yeah, I find it fascinating. I, I knew an individual as well, and he was just so passionate about Gen 2, and that's what got me to install it and try it. Now, I mean, you said about that individual saying it was the best distro out there. Obviously, that's Arch. But the second best distro could very well be Gen 2. <laughs> uh, so maybe uh, when you get that individual to show you why it's the second best, we'll uh, all listen with uh, perked up ears to find out why. Sounds like a plan. I'll I'll uh, I'll put it on the books because you will be meeting him later this year. Nice. So last week we talked about uh, KDE having an issue where they they fixed a high CPU issue with NVIDIA, and it turns out KDE wasn't the only one suffering from a high CPU with in terms of NVIDIA. So the um, the, the, the proprietary driver specifically is what we're talking about. It's, it's if you were using NVIDIA and the proprietary driver. Uh, right. KDE was having a high CPU usage, but now we found out that GNOME is also having that same problem. And uh, we covered this news last week, but we found out this week that the uh, GNOME suffered from the same problem. And the funny thing about it is that they had fixed it accidentally. 
which <laughs> I, I find that is awesome at the same time, kind of hilarious. So uh, Daniel, Van, uh, Daniel Van Vogt has been uh, looking into this problem and he recently fixed it by accident with a request, a recent merge request, which consolidates uh, frame throttling code into clutter stage uh, COGL. And this is kind of like they, he was working on something else to fix a different issue and then accidentally fixed another issue by just doing this, which I think is awesome uh, you know, at the same time. But it, it, it's, it's kind of been un- like we found out that it fixed it, but it also this particular fix has, only, has been available for three months, but they haven't actually merged it into the system yet. So hopefully they do that pretty soon because anybody who's using NVIDIA for some reason still um, is uh, they would definitely need to get that so they can get that fixed. Yeah, I, I think this is interesting because one of the things that stuck out to me is that he has this fix in there for three months and it's still waiting to get merged. And I, and I know not everybody agrees with me on this. We've discussed it before, but doesn't that seem like a pretty long time to have a request for a patch sitting out there? Uh, I think it's in the situation of depending on what it is, the, the patch that he might have been fixing could have been like fixing something else that they didn't consider a big priority. But now that they realize that it's, it's a CPU issue, they might want to be pushing it out more. But see, KDE but, rolled it out, and then we had the fix the second they found the issue, whereas this is three months the fix has been there, and it's still not merged. This well, it was applied to something else that wasn't okay. maybe a high priority. I don't know. Gotcha. I, in the sense of, like, if it's a fix and it has been tested and it's been, like, confirmed that it could be merged, I don't know why they wouldn't merge it. But um, there are times where someone would submit a thing that is a mer- that something that could be merged that isn't necessarily ready because something else is dependent on that being fixed. That makes sense. Um, yeah. But in this case, I, I don't know. I, I would assume it's just because they weren't aware that it affected that thing. It was so. a bigger issue because this patch also addresses NVIDIA performance issues with Mutter and under GNOME on Wayland where the mouse cursors were stuck at 60 hertz even when the monitors were set higher. And as somebody with a 144 hertz monitor, that could be really annoying yes. uh, if that was the case. So there's another reason to implement this patch. Of course, GNOME users are going to have to wait until this uh, patch gets merged and official. Uh, officially merged in there. So uh, it will be interesting to see if other desktop environments, because we know KDE suffered from it, GNOME suffered from it now. I wonder if any of the other desktop environments also have this issue. They yeah. just don't realize it yet. Yeah, it could be an issue. They just, you know, they, they were like, they were all having the same, the same, it's this, this issue could have been involved like in everything, but they weren't aware that of, of the degree that they, that the issue existed until these, this, these fixes started happening. So maybe they'll look into it and see if like they're, they're what they're like, for example, uh, cinnamon is based on gnome. Maybe the stuff that happened with mutter is also, uh, affecting muffin or something like that. So it's an, it's an interesting situation to see what happens. Uh, but I do, I do think that if we, from three months from now, this patch has still not been merged, then we could definitely have a discussion about that. <laughs> Sounds good. So Linux has no shortage of audio players and music organizers, but uh, if you are struggling to deal with all of the options that you have, I'm about to make that feeling worse for you because there's another one out there called Strawberry. So Strawberry has recently released their latest version, 0.53, and it is a fork of Clementine, which I think is very well known for most people. It includes streaming support for Tidal, which I particularly love, and it has Scrobbler with support for Last.fm, Libra.fm, and Listen Brains. So Strawberry was particularly interesting to me because I am a fan of Tidal. Tidal, for those who don't know, is a very um, much an audiophile version of music streaming service. So it streams in very high def, lossless 
music formats. So if you spend a lot of money on your audio equipment and or headphones, then utilizing some of something like a title um, is definitely more encouraged in the audiophile market. At least it is more expensive than your traditional streaming services. Although you can get their package with no hi-fi for like $9, but then that defeats the whole purpose because frankly, titles ability to recommend songs and artists and all that stuff is not nearly as good as things like Spotify, but it's high definition to me is just absolutely incredible. And I've basically had to stream title through a browser, which is fine. Um, but having a application like Strawberry that handles all that for you is a pretty awesome option. It also has artist search and music. Um, we talked about the integrations. It has added support for translations, setting to allow automatically saving album covers directly to your album direct, uh, directory, added more background image options, and fixed GStreamer links, um, leaks in this latest version. So Strawberry is something now on my machines that I'm utilizing for the title integration there. Have any of you ever checked this one out? I, uh, I, I, I went through about a year ago, I went through and I was trying all sorts of different um, audio players and I, I set up a, I used a Sunfire ribbon, cinema ribbons to, to get the actual speakers. And then I bought a 192 uh, uh, bit uh, sample rate, uh, audio, digital to audio converter. And I've been using that uh, since then. And so I, I, I came across this a couple of months ago or a month ago or so, I think. And uh, I, I, I played with it for a little bit. For me, though, I already own so much of my music that I, I don't ever find myself wanting to stream anything. Right. Well, the, the, yeah. the interesting thing about this is that when, when Strawberry was first created, it was focused on the local music. Mm -hmm. So right. like when, when they, when they, they basically forked Clementine and then took out all of the uh, streaming services that Clementine had because they didn't think that it was like a good, uh, the quality of the integration was good enough so that they focused on the local music. And then now that they're adding um, this new stuff with title, it kind of makes me think that like the reason why they're adding title is because of the high definition and all that stuff. So that's an right. interesting thing. Uh, but I would like to point out that, some people would say that why are we forking another music player and we have all yet another music player? Well, it's also worth noting that Clementine, while technically still has some development in it, they haven't had a release in like three years. Right. So it's like having a, a fork of that project because it's not it's basically kind of stale. It does make sense because you know that pro is a very good player. So having you know having someone pick that pick the reins up and you know continue it on is a good thing because I, I think that this is it provides um, you know everybody who likes to get Clementine to still get all the you know the patches and updates and everything. So um, my, well, if you want to use the beta version of Clementine, it still does get updates, but it has been a very long time since they've released a new version. So uh, I think that's a valid reason for Strawberry to exist. Let me let me ask you this, Michael: If you had to choose best Linux music player out there for local music, what would you choose? Well, it depends on your perspective, like what all you want, whether you want some, you know, album art covers or where you want just the basic, uh, a basic player that has nice streamlined approach and has the list style and has the basic fundamentals and everything that you want. If you somebody who's coming over from like what they would expect from somebody who's coming over from like iTunes. Reason I ask is because I get this question all the time from people. They say, I'm, I'm interested in coming over, but I, I don't know what to use for music players. Like what is the, and, and I've struggled, you know, I recently I've been recommending Amarok mm -hmm. uh, because I, I really, really dig the, the user interface. And I, I think they do a nice job of making it easy. And I like the fact that when you close it, it minimizes down to the tray and stuff like that. And it's easy to find it when it's playing audio. Cause one of the things that drives me nuts about Rhythmbox 
is it plays audio and you can't figure out how to shut the stupid thing. Exactly. So, so yeah. there, there's kind of those things, but I'm, I'm wondering, like, is there a go-to that you have that you're like, yep, that's the one I like for music. Okay. For, for me, yes, I do have a go-to music player. I just don't think it'd be like, it wouldn't be considered the modern music player. It wouldn't be considered like the best thing for everybody. If they want something that has nice, you know, cover art and has the cover photos and flows and all that stuff. It's not that it doesn't have, it doesn't care about okay. cover arts at all. Really? Um, so it, it, it will show a cover art for whatever it's playing, but basically just one image and that's it. So it's not going to give you like this nice, you know, polish. Well, what is it already? I'm getting to it. So there is some caveats to this because everything you're talking about of like rhythm box, listen, the rhythm box has this thing where the music doesn't connect to the systems tray and it doesn't connect to the media player that's built into plasma and stuff like that. And that's why it makes it a little bit difficult to find it. And by default, this player does not have this stuff either. However, it all it has everything you want in a plugin system, and the plugins are built into the thing. They're just not on, and I don't know why, but they're not. So it's called QMMP, and it is the Cute Multimedia Player is what that means. And I, I I'm a huge fan of this thing because you can also give it a huge catalog of music, and it will it will activate it really quickly. I mean, it, and it won't it, like let's say you have like you know, multiple, multiple gigs of music, it will import that music within seconds. If you have terabytes of music, I don't know how you'd get that much, but you could, and it will import that music, you know, fairly quickly, and it won't crash because it's too much data or whatever. And that's what makes it a powerful media player. Now, by default, it looks like uh, Winamp from the 90s. And I know some people like that, and that's, you know, more power to you if you do. I just don't like the fact that it's it, it, every every button is super tiny. Everything is just, you know, it, it's not fluid. It's not it's not convenient. It doesn't. It's just just looks old. However, there is a, a a setting inside of the the configuration of the preferences that turns it into looking like a regular like a music player. It looks like a full app. Looks like a regular. I've never app. heard you say however so many times about a software. Package. But here's the thing: it's, it's like crap. However. <laughs> It's I've never seen him work that hard not to say a package name either. <laughs> well, no, it was, it's Q- QMMP. QMMP. It's hard. It's hard to say. That's why it took forever. But, oh, um, but it's 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 a fantastic player, and I I'm a huge fan of it, and I I've been using it for a very long time, and it's very it's awesome. It has all the features you want, but it, it does have some caveats that you got to get you got to get past right by default. When I first saw it, I was like, I don't want to have a WinAmp player. I'm not going to worry about it, and then. I, you know, looked on, played with different music players and came back to it. And I was like, okay, let's just try it again. And I don't like it. And I come back and then I was like, I noticed one screenshot on their website looks like a regular app. And that made me go, wait, can I do this? And it's just a setting. It's just changed this GUI to a different style of the setting. As soon as I switched to it, it was so much better. It became like a regular music player. And I, and I, much, I'm a big fan of it actually. Um, so I think it's probably the best player, but because it's the default is so weird, and because all these features are turned off by default, it is a problem for me to just recommend it. Because people who are wanting just to get a player, you know, quickly, like if you install Strawberry, majority of what you want is right, right, right there for you. Right. Yeah. So our patrons are saying QMMP. So some are agreeing with you, and others are saying Lollipop. So Lollipop is also a very popular one out there. Yeah. I know that has uh, grown in popularity. Uh, it's interesting when you said strawberry you just used. So the one reason I wanted to use strawberry is for its title integration, but I got an error as soon as I tried to use title with it for a G, a G streamer error. 
when it was a generic error, which I hate because then I feel like I'm back on Windows getting like a generic code that means nothing. Yeah. So I, I did some research and thankfully, like always, Link's community, someone out there ran into it and found the issue. And that is a you need to utilize a GST plugins bad package to get the streaming portion to work. I don't cool. know what all included in that because I didn't have time to research it. But once you do that, boom, you're up and going with your title streaming there. So that's good. But also like uh, the, the, the system tray system, like that it's it's Empress is like the protocol to send stuff to your sister, your, your desktops, uh, media player, uh, by default, QMMP doesn't have, it has it, but it's not on. So it doesn't work okay. when you activate it, it does work. So it's that kind of thing is like lollipop is really nice looking. It's a very yeah, modern player. Like it's, it is beautiful. It, the, it has the, if you want a modern player that has the, uh, the, the album art and all that stuff, you know, nicely laid out and everything. Lollipop is a really good option for that. There you go. Linux finds its way into just about everything, and there are certain areas where Linux has kind of become the go-to standard. And we've talked in the past about Linux becoming the de facto standard as it relates to robotics. Well, another place that you might expect to see Linux just kind of by default is on smart TVs. Now, for years, manufacturers have been shipping TVs with customized versions of Android that don't include Google Play, and they modify uh, you know, these versions from Chinese manufacturers to, to put them onto, uh, onto TVs. But in 2018, 2019, we're starting to see a shift. You have a bunch of different uh, TVs. Vizios, for example, use SmartCast. Google have CastOS. Uh, Philips and Android-based, is it Safi? Is that how you pronounce it? T Samsung running Tizen Linux, uh, empowering their TV since 2015. And uh, now you have WebOS entering the market or have had WebOS entering the market. WebOS originally was designed by Palm, later bought out by HP. I don't know who owns them now. I think they got LG. spun back off. LG. Mm -hmm. uh, they got spun back off. But one of the interesting things they did in that process was they took WebOS, which was actually, I think, one of the best mobile operating systems ever created. Agreed. And, and, yep. and open sourced it and say, here you go, do whatever you want. And so uh, platforms have taken that and said, well, we're going to incorporate that into TVs. Now, personally, I don't purchase smart TVs for a couple of reasons. One is there are a number of privacy concerns with smart TVs that have come up as far as the microphones recording you or transmitting data, mm -hmm. and I think that's creepy. But the other reason is a more practical one. Even if you don't care about the privacy aspect, the power ability of an ARM processor effectively almost doubles every single year. Yeah. And so when you buy a smart TV and you buy a $3,000 device that you put in your house that gets outdated 360 days later, that to me is what's known as a ripoff. I am far more interested in buying a very high quality 4K display, 1080p display, 720, whatever it is you're going to buy, and then adding on a device that is going to give me some functionality. In my case, I tend to gravitate towards the NVIDIA Shield. I know the Rokus are, are, are popular, but you, can, you, could, you could build your own with a Raspberry Pi and flash uh, Libra, you know, Libra Elect on it. Um, all of those are options to, to, to get you with the same features as a smart TV without all of the downsides of a smart TV. But one thing is for sure, no matter if you buy a smart TV or if you buy a regular TV and then add smart functionality on, Linux is establishing itself as the standard. When I talk to people, even in Best Buy, and I hear people running around, I hear two questions. Does it run Plex? Does it run Kodi? Because even if they don't know anything about open source or Linux or servers or hosting or syndication or, or, or transcoding or any of that stuff, the only thing they know is Plex is how they can stream media to their devices, and Kodi is how they can watch their local, their, their local videos. I have watched 
I have watched a time where we have gone from uh, people having to record off of TVs and 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 trying to all sorts of crazy different software that required Windows to run to make MKV becoming the standard for ripping media. And so it's it's un, not surprising to me at all that the media industry is kind of centering around Linux because there wasn't a player in the game. And Microsoft kind of dabbled a little bit and Apple kind of dabbled a little bit. Apple's answer, by the way, is essentially, hey, you know how you used to pay for cable TV services? You know how you went away from that, went to streaming services? Hey, now you can pay us to have the streaming services that stream in your house, kind of like you did with the cable, except you can pay us instead of the cable company. That was Apple's answer. So the rest of us are kind of looking around going, yeah, I'm pretty happy with my Kodi box, my Plex box. I'm just happy to see those kind of technologies being implemented into the TVs themselves. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. And the uh, the, the WebOS, I totally agree. It's it's the best mobile interface I've ever used. And I, I was so sad I had to get rid of it. I would have yeah. never gotten rid of it had the hardware you know, sure. not collapsed or whatever, but oh, like yeah. that, this like it's just a great thing. And Open WebOS is what you're talking about. Where they open sourced it, and they also, but LG also took WebOS and turned it into a a smart TV interface. So it looks very different, but it is as smooth as WebOS was. So it's still it is still a good experience in terms of the smart TV aspects. But I agree, I would rather have a device rather than the the TV itself trying to be smart because. The, the the interesting thing is that a smart TV is actually a dumb decision because they're not <laughs> smart after the year. Exactly. No, and if you look at Vizio, what Noah touched on specifically, they were in the news for this recording activities you were doing while you're on your TV with their smart feature. It just makes so much sense that you want to utilize your own solution here and not a smart television. Funny enough, when that story dropped about Vizio, I'd never even considered the idea that they would be doing something like that. My wife loves to go out there and hunt good deals. We got a 70 inch TV for 300 bucks, you know, with mismarked. And so I was sitting there when that news popped, staring at my 70 inch Vizio going, oh no. <laughs> so eventually I, yeah. I actually did get rid of it um, and sold it. And Really? It. Yes. You didn't just disable it? No. Uh, I just wanted to, I don't want to support any company and it, it, you know, I'd already spent the money, but I just don't want it in my house. So uh, I got a a different television that we got also for a fantastic deal out there that didn't have that. And then, of course, we set up our own Kodi server. So I just don't want to mess with anything or any company that supports that type of stuff. Of course, I'd already kind of ripped them off to begin with getting that <laughs> for, for 300 bucks. But it is yeah. obnoxious to me that so many of these devices that it's not enough to charge you the $2,000 for the TV, but then they want to also figure out ways to sell and capture telemetry data as if the money they're making is just never enough. And I'm all for people making money and making good living, but not at the cost of people's privacy. At least let people sit in their own homes on a couch privately watching the TV they want. Why do you have to invade that place too? It's just so obnoxious. Yeah. Even uh, there was actually an an interview with someone at CES this year from Vizio where I think it was the CEO, might have been something like somebody else, but uh, they were d- talking about how they didn't make a lot of money on the TVs, so they were doing the telemetry thing as an extra way to s- make money and sell the information and stuff. And it's like, I just don't want your TVs anymore. Like yeah, exactly. Oscon, it was Oscon. It was a uh, four or five years ago. I was at Oscon, and uh, one of the companies that makes the uh, universal remotes that they sell to the satellite companies that they give you the all-in-one remote when you buy your satellite receiver. They were talking about how that thing can actually uh, record and it can record reactions so they can tell if people are liking a show or disliking a show or whatever. Like, And they, they, they present it as if it's a benefit. Like, oh, isn't this great? Like, 
that's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> the remote is tracking. Like, okay, yeah, that's yeah. A, and unfortunately, I see a lot of people in Linux utilizing Roku devices, and I, I will, um, and I love them as well. They were fantastic, but until I looked at their privacy policy, so go look at if you're using a Roku, their privacy policy and some of the things that they do, and you probably will want to get rid of that as well. Which is why having your own kind of custom solution is probably the best route to go. Yeah. And it also kind of is worth notice that Roku is based on Linux, but it is a very heavily modified Linux that doesn't allow you to do even local demedia and all kinds of stuff. So yeah, I can understand why people would like it because it's an easy way to get approach to it. But, um, you know, interesting enough, if you wanted to, you could actually set up like get a, an Amazon Fire Stick. And while yes, Amazon is one of the worst examples of the things. You can actually replace the Fire Stick's interface with Kodi. I have a video on it, in fact. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, Check just that doing out. just that, you can hack it and put Kodi on it. It's pretty awesome. You actually, the way you do it is from an app on your phone that you download, and then you basically, it accepts that through that app, transmits the OS and installs it from there. At least that's how I was able to get it done. It's a pretty cool hack. So yes, definitely get one of the, if you have one of these devices, do what Michael said, consider instead of just getting rid of it or spending more money, just hacking it and turning it into what you want in the first place. That's yeah, a good exactly. If you already got it, you might as well. But uh, yeah. yeah, if you don't check out, you know, like the Raspberry Pi, you can set up LibreLike and have Cody and it's, it's a great experience there too. Uh, speaking of Raspberry Pi, we just recently got an, an announcement from the Raspberry Pi team that they are they are releasing the official mouse and keyboard of the Raspberry Pi, and there's there's actually a lot of things that are uh, interesting about this. Like a lot of people were like, "Why would I want to <laughs> do? Uh, why would I want to get a specific keyboard and mouse from the Raspberry Pi? Like, what's the point of that? Isn't the point of having a Pi is be you could like put all the kind of peripherals you want into it? And that's true. However, uh, it's actually pretty interesting because they they have a, a the, one of the things I liked about the the keyboard is that it's it's the keyboard is not only is it a keyboard it's also a USB hub too, so you you're going to use one of the USB uh, in the Pi to connect to the keyboard, but there's also three hubs there are three ports on the keyboard itself, so you can actually connect your mouse to the the keyboard. So the only thing you're actually going to use is only you not only you're gonna you're gonna get gain two ports rather than losing one. So that's a kind of a cool cool idea that they did that without having to lose, you know, losing your your the all the only four you have on the pie would be a bad thing. So I really like right. the fact that they did that. Yeah, I love this. I know Noah's gonna love this because he's one of those people who can't stand chords being in the background. So he would hate in my house. He'd probably just throw up everywhere. Uh, he can't stand chords <laughs> and likes things to be a certain way. And having that the official Raspberry Pi case is that white and red that you can order from them. Um, the keyboard is white and red. The mouse is white and red, the new mouse and stuff. So you kind of got this nice coordination flow too. If you're someone who's going to have the raspberry Pi out there and the open for people to see, uh, if you're into that, but more importantly, I think number one is they've stuck to their kind of, it looks like they went into a lot of work. If you read about it, by the way, of looking at the Omron switches that they use for their mouse to make sure the weighting was correctly, to make sure a lot of work went into the keyboard, to make sure the LEDs didn't, the light didn't leak through on the caps lock keys and the num lock key, et cetera. And they also created a bunch of keyboards with a different range of countries for languages for the different countries that they support. And you can get this, the keyboard was like $17 and the mouse was $8. So they did all of this work and still give you quite a nice, you know, feature set for very inexpensive, which is, Kind of, you know, you're used to that with the Raspberry Pi. It's a very inexpensive computer and you can get very, but still high quality and yeah. unlimited use cases. 
And here you're getting that with their mouse and keyboard and you get to support this company some more, give them some more of your money versus going out and buying some, you know, un unbranded uh, keyboard and things out there. So I think it's pretty cool out there for them to offer this. And I'll probably buy one just because I want to support them some more. Support them. And then the other thing is like, like you say, it has, there's a branding portion to this, right? Like you can tell then when you're using it, that it's that you're using a raspberry Pi and other people can see that. And the, 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 when I was looking at it, one of the things I liked, I wish they had used the type C connector. I would have thought that would have been pretty cool if you're going to make a, a keyboard in 2019, but they, they have all of the extra USB ports on the keyboard. What's the first thing you run out of when you're using a Raspberry Pi? Yeah, the USB ports. USB sure. ports. That's the first thing I eat up. So I, I also pick a couple of these up for my kids and uh, maybe give one to my son for his, uh, for his coding adventures. Nice. There's actually a, this, this recently, I'm not sure when they added this, but um, there's also, they added the, another color scheme too. So if you don't like the white and red, you don't have to. They also have like a black and gray one. Uh, so it's, if you do like that, it's pretty cool because it's like, uh, for me, I don't really like the brightness of my devices to be super bright. So I do like the, the fact that they added that as well. But what's really cool about the case is that uh, I think this is a great case. If you ever, as Raspberry Pi and you wanted to do more than just uh, connect peripherals to the ports, the uh, the top of the case for this particular one is like a snap on, snap off. So mm-hmm. you can actually get access to the GPIO and all that other stuff without doing any real effort other than just like t- t- uh, popping off the top. So that's pretty cool. Nice. So next up, we have SUSE, soon to be the largest independent Linux company out there. They kind of cheated in a way that they got yeah. this a little bit, but it's still interesting news, I think. Uh, with IBM's recent acquisition of Red Hat, SUSE is proclaiming that they will be the largest independent Linux company left. Their C CEO says, we believe that makes our status as a truly independent open source company more important than ever. Our genuinely open source solutions, flexible business practices, lack of enforced vendor lock-in, and exceptional service are more critical to customer and partner organizations, and our independence coincides with our single-minded focus on delivering what is best for them. So when we talk about making money in Linux, SUSE has grown massively, or impressively, I should say, at 15% growth in revenue for 2018, passing the $400 million mark and adding 300 employees in the last 12 months, which is pretty impressive. Another interesting note is SUSE is still on um, IBM mainframe primary. They're they're still a primary partner with IBM mainframe, which we know IBM bought Red Hat. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that will be something that will continue into the future, but they at least still have that partnership now. But the reason why I wanted to bring this up more than anything else was to ask you guys, is it important for Linux companies to remain independent? Do we think that the massive acquisitions that I think are very likely to happen uh, in Linux is going to ruin Linux? Uh, it's, inter- it's interesting you asked that because I thought this, I thought this claim from Seuss was a little grabby, I guess, attention grabby. I, I'm not I'm not sure what the, the word I'm looking for is, but here's the reality. The implication there that they're the largest independent Linux, the implication there is that Red Hat is somehow fundamentally changed because of their acquisition of right. IBM. And in truth, the opposite couldn't be more true. Red Hat, you have to understand something about Red Hat. Red Hat doesn't have a dime worth of intellectual property, okay? So... <laughs> They made the largest, IBM made the largest software acquisition company in history for 30 plus billion dollars. 
and they don't they didn't buy anything in the in the in, in in the spectrum of intellectual property they own nothing all they bought was culture that's it because that's all red hat has to offer culture so i i i find it a little bit i find it a little bit disingenuous i'm you might be able to tell i'm a, i'm a little bit irritated about the way that that's coming off is this idea that red hat is is somehow they're somehow damaged because they've been acquired by ibm no they just got a really big banker to write really big checks behind the awesome work that they're already doing. And if they've, if they've demonstrated what they can do with a couple billion dollars, now let's see what they do with hundreds of billions of dollars behind them, because there is no other reason for IBM to purchase them. If it's not to continue what Red Hat is already doing. Yeah. Um, you could so also argue that, that Red Hat might be helping IBM transition to the more of like a thing because they're, they've always been 100%. Linux and open source focused in heavy ways, but they couldn't actually commit fully to that thing. Maybe Red Hat's going to help them. If you want to see companies like IBM come become more like companies like Red Hat, then you need to get people from Red Hat into companies like IBM. That's how that works. Yep. Uh, and so I get, I, I get, you're absolutely 100% on point, Michael. That, that is, that's how you solve that. And I very much have higher confidence in Red Hat's culture rubbing off on IBM than it going the other way. And like I said, that would be a 35, that yeah, would be $35 billion dollars in the toilet if they yeah. were trying to, to take over what IBM is, is doing. It just doesn't make any sense. So to, to answer your question directly, Ryan, I would say it depends. It depends on the company that is purchasing them. If Microsoft purchased Canonical, I might have a different reaction than if IBM purchases Red Hat. So I would say it depends on the company that is doing the purchasing and the strength of the company that is being purchased. Yeah, and I'd also point out that while I'm a, I do like OpenSUSE and I do like SUSE and some of the stuff they have, it is not only is it kind of weird that they're pointing a light at Red Hat as being like negative because they were purchased, but it's not really independent to be fair. I mean, yes, they are working independently from the people who own them, but they're still owned by a bigger corporation. They're owned by an equity. Right. Firm. So like, sure. Is it really fair to say that you're a, you're a truly independent uh, company? That's then that's what makes you the, your services and, and practices stuff better. Like, cause you're not really. And at the same time, it's not really, you know, negative to red hat that they're being, they were purchased. So I would agree to the, to what Noah said about, who purchased it and what is being purchased and whether it could be negatively impacting on the thing. So uh, in, in most cases, I would say that it's more than likely not because the mm -hmm. companies like the, the companies and the projects that are involved in Linux are involved for a reason and they're involved for a particular philosophy and they are, you know, they are, are pro open source and pro that, you know, that structure mm -hmm. so that if they were going to be purchased by a company who is not in the same kind of mindset, I don't think they would allow them to sell CPT purchase in the first place. I think Red Hat was only was willing willing to sell to IBM is because IBM wanted was willing to embrace their culture and their approach sure. to things. So, in in most cases, I don't think that it's it's a big deal anyway. And SUSE has been sold and resold and all kinds of stuff so many times that um, if we were to be af afraid that. You know, if anybody would be affected by something like that, it, we I would have assumed it had been at SUSE because how many times it has gone over multiple purchases. Like Novell used to own SUSE a long time ago, and you know, like so many different things happened. If any, if if a company would have been negatively affected by that, I think SUSE would be an example, and that makes SUSE a great example that it doesn't have a problem because they've gone through the, so many different iterations, and they're still mm -hmm. the same quality company that they've always been.
Interesting. What do you think the, um, like if you're, if you're sitting down, who is the Seuss customer? Who is the guy that sits down and go, yeah, you know what? Uh, Ubuntu, not that, that wouldn't work here. Red Hat, not going to work here. Seuss, that is really the answer. And this, who is that customer? I think the majority of the customers are enterprise companies in Europe. Okay. I think that's just like just mainly like a regional thing. Like it's you know Red Hat is a U.S. based company, so these mm-hmm. companies are like, well, I don't want to deal with a U.S. based company. I'd rather deal with a European sure. company. So they got SUSE, sure. and I think that's kind of like they, the Red Hat and SUSE are basically the same customer. I just think like there's gotcha. different reasons for different markets. Yeah, sure. Different different reasons people would want to use one for the over the other and that kind of thing. That makes sense. <laughs> so Linux Mint 19.2 is it was announced recently on their on the Mint blog for latest update for their like their monthly update that they give, and there was an article that was written uh, that's pretty interesting we want to talk about, and it was about how the Linux Mint devs seem depressed, and I thought it'd be an interesting thing to talk about because. Um, you know, there's different perspectives about how you can interpret the way that the Mint blog was talking about it. Um, so anyway, Linux Mint 19.2 is on the way. And, you know, usually that's an exciting time for fans and devs alike. Uh, but Beta News was saying that an article is showing some of the community responses that the devs have been recently made that are leading to the perception that the devs seem slightly depressed. So the article touches on some comments that uh, Clem... I don't know how to say your last name. I'm just not even going to try. The leader of the Linux Mint project, uh, he had in his the latest post, here's some quotes about what he said in the update. And that is, um, I personally haven't enjoyed this development cycle so far. Two of our most talented developers have been away during the cycle. It's not always easy to achieve what we want, and sometimes it's not easy to define what we want to achieve. We, ha- we can have doubts. We can work really hard on something f- for a while and then question it so much we're not even sure if we'll ship it or not. We can get uh, demotivated, uncertain, depressed, even by negative reactions and interactions, and it can lead to developers stepping away from the project or taking a break or even just leaving for good. So it's an interesting situation because uh, Clem was talking about how this is not really a great experience this particular cycle because of some influx of users, some reactions online, uh, like whether they're negative or they're cr- like critical, um, overly critical, or mm-hmm. even sometimes spiteful in some cases. Um, and I thought it would be interesting to talk about that. Yeah, it, it is really interesting. So let me take you back to when I started with Linux and everybody was hating Unity. Everybody was talking about Unity's crap, Unity's junk, Unity's this. It just seemed like that's what I was surrounded with. And then Unity went away. And everybody now I hear saying, oh, man, I miss Unity. Unity was so much better. <laughs> Unity this, yep. Unity that. To be fair, okay, hold on. Just to be fair, there is a massive, massive difference between Unity 20, you know, circa 15 or whatever, and or 14, whatever the last one was, and, or 16, I guess it would be, right? 2016. Whatever. Yeah. And Unity when it first got released, like they're almost indistinguishable from each other. Well, I think the sure. argument was that they people didn't care about which one was like the newest versions or whatever. They just essentially just hated it forever sure. because that it was a separate thing that. Canonical so I think made. I started Linux like the end of 2016. So that's when I would have started hearing all of that type of commentary out there. Oh, okay. But- but it, it's interesting because Linux Mint to me falls in a very similar category. I see it as a distribution that is often attacked um, and people will vehemently attack it with, I hate 
Linux Mint. I, you know, and it's not even just trying to point out, okay, there's this thing I don't like. Like, Michael, you've critiqued Linux Mint in the past, mm-hmm. but it's always been, hey, these are these specific things I don't like. I've never heard you say, I hate that. I would never touch that. It's disgusting. It's stupid. It's blah, blah, blah. Right. And, and that's what you see happening out there about people who utilize Linux Mint. Now, you guys know how much I love Arch. You know how much I love XFCE, but I also utilize Linux Mint for individuals who I'm switching to Linux. It's one of my favorite distros to put on to people who are new to Linux computers, not that an experienced user wouldn't utilize it as well. It's actually a very, very good distribution. And I think a lot of the critiques that have been out there, not all have been fixed, but most of them have been addressed. There's something about a website that happened where somebody didn't secure it at some point, and it keeps being brought up over and over That's again. That's not, that is, okay, so that that did happen, and that where sure. somebody was able to inject malicious code, but that is not where, that is not the extent of the secure, or the concern for security of Linux Mint. It extends beyond that. Yeah. Uh, there are other security practices uh, that are still happening. Uh, I, I want to choose my words very carefully. I, I, I want to choose my words carefully. There are other decisions that are made and continue to be made that are not best practices and don't meet the same standards as other similar projects. Yeah. I'll, just, I'll leave it at that. But I guess. Is that still occurring with the changes that they made to their, because I, I understand yes, kind of. Yes. a lot of the, yes. the problems were based on the backup, the ability to basically not push security updates forward. But when they implemented their new backup solution, that seemed to address that because well, now they're pushing all security updates. You can just revert sort of. if it breaks something, right? The situation here is that, well, I'm a, I'm a fan, I used to use Mint for my primary distro, and I am a fan of their overall goal and their overall polish and the, the stuff that they do. But there are some things that they do that are kind of like cutting corners. So when I, when we talked about in previous episodes of you know me talking about the negative things that I th- have about Mint, it's always with a caveat that, Yes, I, there are some things that are bad, but I think the reason why I point out these things is because if Mint were to fix them, Mint would be one of the best distros to suggest to people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right now, it's it's still a really good option to suggest to people, especially if you're brand new, because Cinnamon is a really nice yes. uh, desktop environment. Uh, they The way they implement Mate is pretty good. Uh, they, they also do, do some nice stuff to improve the way the layout of XFCE is and everything. So they actually are a good distro. I just think they would be a great distro if they were to take care of these particular features. So like the thing you're talking about, the security thing, well, yes, the time shift being added does give you a way to roll back the things if there's a problem. However, the reason there's a problem is because of the ways that Mint was cutting corners in order to do, build their distro. So the problem is that if you use Ubuntu right now, or in the past you know, many years, if you updated your security or your kernel drivers, your whatever, it doesn't break anything. It's fine. And for a long time, Mint was telling people that it's possible that you would mess up your system because if you install these certain level tiers of uh, mm-hmm. kernel problem, kernel updates or security updates or whatever, these patches could break your system. And the reason why they could is because there was some corner cutting in many years ago with, with Mint to make sure that to make the distro work. And instead of implementing the way that Ubuntu did, they wanted to change the way they built their structure and their kernel and everything. So if you installed packages from Ubuntu you could in, in, in introduce some stuff that would be incompatible with the way that Mint did it. So this time shift thing doesn't really fix the problem. It's more of a band-aid of the problem. So it solves it in a general sense that if you do have a problem, you can roll back. 
but it still doesn't solve the fact that there still can be a problem because the way that they cut the corners just kind of makes the problem with the, the introduces that security patch problem and that kind of thing. So overall, I think that Mint would be one of the better distros. I mean, it could be like in the top five distros in general if they were to fall, solve this one situation, um, like these these couple corner cutting things. Uh, but overall, even now, it's still one of the better distros anyway. So it's like it I could think be. So a too, great and I've not heard of you know major. And not saying that this is an excuse, but I've never heard of any major. Oh, Linux Mint didn't roll this patch, and therefore all the computers in Linux Mint were compromised, like you'll hear in a Windows situation or something along those lines. But it would be better. It sounds like to fix that, and I don't know all the details behind it. But the, one of the and I took us down this road. But one of the things I really wanted to bring up out of this is I don't know how true all of this statement is. It could be just somebody being brutally honest in their blog saying, "Hey, sometimes we get depressed when we're working on something," and it sucks to see all the negative reactions when we do release something new we're excited about that comes from the community. And I think that's just very human and we all are there. I don't care what industry you're in or what you're doing. You do get to the point, even in my own YouTube channel, where you get 500 great comments and then you get that one person. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it just, it, it destroys you. Yeah. It and, it just, and it sucks you. and it sucks motivation out like no tomorrow. Right, exactly. And this can happen to anybody. And I love that they were this human about it, but I also thought it was amazing, something amazing to bring up to talk about ways of supporting. Not everybody can financially support some of these distros, which I know we've been encouraging on the show too, if you can. But one way that's absolutely free, that does not require a lot of time at all, is to go on social media or go on the forums and thank the developers for the work that they do. Mm -hmm. Even if you can't financially give them a penny, it's absolutely free to go and do that. And it can make a huge difference. Let me tell you, people who come on and say things like in the telegram today, somebody, some people were complimenting some things I said in the prior episode. It makes my day. It literally makes my day that comment. Like it just makes me, it starts my day off happy. And the same thing can happen with YouTube and other stuff. So this stuff matters when people say nice things or take the time to be like, Hey, thank you for mentioning this. Thank you for doing this. Thank you guys for, fixing this. And then that doesn't mean everything has to be nice. You can also, you know, even when you're leaving critiques, be kind, because you never heard Mike or Noah, even though they were critiquing Mint on some things, say, I hate Linux Mint. It's a piece of crap because it does. Never heard that. They said, hey, this security issue, if they would fix this and not take the Band-Aid off and put a permanent fix in, this would be one of the best distros out there. That's how things should be done when you're talking about this, because we all benefit from the work Linux Mint team has done, whether we utilize the distro directly or not, because they've been involved in a lot of other pieces of the operating systems that get utilized by other distros, et cetera. So it's just it's just something good to do. You know, totally here's agree. here's the here's the other side of that. The other side of that is it's not constructive, right? Like the end of the day, I didn't pay anything for Linux Mint and yet I get to benefit off of anything that they do. So keep that in mind when you're when you're dealing out harsh criticism. These are people, they don't owe you anything. Linux Mint can do what they want to do and release the mm-hmm. product they want to release. And if you don't like it, don't use it. If you do like it, use it and thank them. Uh, and if, you, if you're like me and Michael and yourself, then maybe don't use it because you've got some concerns and be open and honest and upfront about those concerns and see if they can address them. And part of the reason I'm trying to pick what I say on the air publicly is because I've had some conversations in private, not with Clem directly, but with other people. And it seems like the the things that I would like Linux Mint to do are not things that they are willing or interested in doing. And that's fine. I respect that. 
And so I don't want to necessarily just say, like, I don't want to air dirty laundry, so to speak. Right. If I can't, because it's not constructive because I won't fix anything. Um, so I'll leave it at there are some, I have some very serious concern, security concerns, and I would like to see those addressed. And if not, then I wish the project the best of luck because I still think it's a great project. Yeah. By the way, uh, open invitation to developers on the Mint team to come on to our show anytime. We'd love to talk to you and uh, discuss some of this some more. It doesn't even have to be directly related to this, just some work that you guys are doing in Mint and talk to you uh, about you know any of those concerns and also about the future of Mint because I think it's a very important project and I want to see it continue on. And I hope a lot of people who do love Mint because there's a lot of users in our Telegram and watch our YouTube videos that love and use Mint. We'll go out there and take this and give them some encouragement, uh, as well as any other distro, by the way, out there. If you're using Arch, if you're using Ubuntu, give all those folks some nice, kind words on social media that show them, tell them how much you appreciate it because it makes a difference. Yeah, and uh, there's also comments where we'll there's a, there's a situation where that's a great point, but if you've if you've ever built something or you created something that's shared with the public, this kind of thing happens where you are more often going to get people who um, will be the most vocal will be the most negative. And there are going to be some people who will, who will comment like on YouTube, they will comment. They'll see the majority of the people who comment are, you know, are positive and there's, there's a few that will be negative. Um, but the ones that are negative are the most um, re- like resilient on it. They will just continue to just bash you. And I guarantee you they're also the least likely to ever donate to any project or give any type of time to actually fix anything. They're the same people. The ones that act like that are the ones that will never give a dollar yeah. and would never spend any ounce of time actually helping. Yeah. In most cases, you can just ignore the majority of the negative feedback if they're in that situation, if they're approaching it in that kind of way where they're just trying to just be, just right. send you vitriol and, you know, just be vile as much as possible. However, uh, I do want to point out that. The reason I brought this part this part up is because I wanted to let you know that there's some people who love a project and they love the work that has been done, but they just kind of assume that other people have told them and that they already have the motivation to do it. If you just send them a message, send them an email, send them something, letting them know that you appreciate what they do, that in itself is such a, a big bonus to me, motivational to get people to continue to do it, that... If you were to let's say, for example, you had five things that you you wanted to, to let you that you love that are projects that are distros or whatever, and you just send the messages like to say that to someone like, hey, thank you for making this, and you know, thank you for making this. Let's say you know a hundred people did that from this podcast, just this one episode, just send it to these people. The amount of joy that it brings that when you see people are appreciating the content, like one, there's sometimes people don't even know that you're using their software. Exactly. It's not like Windows where we get telemetry data to let us know. <laughs> exactly. So just letting them know is going to be a huge, uh, you know, boost to their 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 motivation and their enjoyment of doing it. So just mm-hmm. even if you can't give them money any money at all, just let them know that you appreciate their work, and that in many cases will be enough, and they'll be incredibly appreciative of it. Yep. Agreed. Valve is making news again this time with their own VR headset known as Valve. Index. Now, this is somewhat of an unexpected move from Valve because they have been working so closely with HTC. However, the competition is likely to be great for consumers in getting the cost and the quality of devices up. So this came originally from a, it was originally, it was leaked on a blog and then Steam took the post down and now it's kind of resurfaced again. Uh, the, The original screen cap was from a 
a, a website that looked like Valve was in the process of building, mm-hmm. and one of the system requirements was Linux and, and or Windows. Um, now that's kind of been more cemented. There is talk of knuckle finger tracking inside of the controller, likely to be bundled with an accessory. Um, some rumors are saying that they're they're going to use inside out cameras, so there'll no be no need to use external uh, tracking devices mounting on the walls, which would be really nice. Minimum specifications looks like it's going to be eight gigabytes for RAM and NVIDIA uh, nine seventy or AMD four eighty or better. Um, Valve continues to diversify, but also they continue to put Linux first. Yes, it seems like. Valve is really taking a stance here and has been taking a stance for some time. When they do something, when they develop something, when they push something forward, Linux is going to be treated as a first-class citizen. And I think what Valve is counting on is creating and participating inside of an ecosystem and an environment that when Microsoft, if and when Microsoft becomes hostile, they just go, okay, well, we already exist over in this sandbox, so we don't really care. The other possibility might be that they don't they have more confidence in the technical superiority of Linux over Windows. And so they feel that they're able to get better performance by leveraging the open source and Linux community. And I think they found people on Linux and open source to be generally pretty generous people and pretty welcoming people over to their environment. So it's exciting to see that VR is going to take a first class, have a first class citizen, uh, uh, be a first class citizen rather on Linux, because I think that again, VR is the next stage for gaming. It's the next big evolution of gaming. And for Linux to be right on the forefront of that, that's absolutely awesome because it means that we're going to rise up the same way that Windows is. Yeah, absolutely. I was so excited about this because I'm super excited about the project you're working on to do a VR system. And then when I saw this, I was like, oh, I want to get this in here because maybe Noah wants to wait till this release. Yeah, I may. Yeah, um, because this is going to be pretty exciting. I, you know, it says upgrade your experience May 2019, so it's really kind of right around the corner. They are saying right now day one Linux support. So this is not a situation where we've got to wait 30, 60, 90 days before we can utilize the new headset. And I'm really interested. We don't know all the specifics, but their Knuckles finger tracking controller looks very innovative uh, controller. And we know they gave us Mm -hmm. the Steam controller, which some people like, some people don't. But you cannot deny it was a a really innovative way of implementing a controller. Um, And so they, they just have a lot of unique ideas. They're very diverse in a lot of the products and things that they're getting into. They obviously know there's going to be a lot of, you know, market changes now with all of this cloud gaming and things, which I think, for the most part, it's probably going to be a little bit of a flop, um, at least for some of the implementations I'm seeing at the moment. But we know the new PlayStation is about to be announced. We knew the new Xbox is about to be announced, and those are going to be very cloud-centric. I think VR is a great way to, um, you know, kind of push, because Steam already owns cloud-based, uh, basically, but not streaming-based, but really push their portfolio in another direction of where the market's headed, which is VR. And now by not partnering themselves directly with HTC Vive. They have a lot of ability to control the applications, how it functions, all of those things, which means likely a lot of games that are going to come out and be built for this VR headset in the leader of cloud gaming, Steam, are going to have to have Linux support. I would think that that would be kind of a natural thing to happen there, Uh, or at least it would be a lot more encouraged than it would be from these other platforms. 
Yeah, and yeah, super yeah. exciting. Yeah, it's, I, I completely agree. And the 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 knuckle thing is really interesting because they also have uh, pressure sensitive sensors in the in the controller, mm-hmm. so you can actually uh, like the way you the way you uh, hold the con- the controller is is also like the the amount of force you put into it. Like if you're swinging a sword or something, you could control it that way. So that's that's pretty cool. Um, I'd also like to point out that like that there's been some not necessarily rumors because there's some people who have a little bit of information about it that the 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 valve index is supposed to be a higher quality of than the, than the HTC Vive, and it might be like some situations that Vive or HTC didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to continue sharing the percentage with Valve, and Valve's like, well, we'll just make our own then or something. Right, um, but and that the, is a tough bot is a tough bar to beat though. Let me tell you, yeah. I mean the 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 HTC Vive that is a heck of a hits. It was funny too because I thought I had experienced VR when I was when I played with the Oculus, then I put on the Vive, and I'm like, man, this is feels like a totally different like it's a whole different level of yeah. vr well they say that the um the in that the hcc vive has a, a field of view of 110 and they're saying that the uh, valve index will have a 140 uh, v- v- fov so it's going to have wow. uh, like even higher quality experience and, and or more inver- immersive experience now we talked about this before we move on and it got cut out of our show notes because we were utilizing a new platform today, but it was also Valve release of their latest hardware and software survey. And we mentioned this at the beginning, so I didn't want to miss it in that we talked about pushing individuals not to utilize, not to dual boot if you can help it in any form or fashion. And one of those ways is in gaming. Now I was a heavy gamer before I went to Linux, moved to Linux, I loved gaming. I've been gaming my entire life and moving to Linux, especially when I did it three years ago, there wasn't as many options because we didn't have Steam Proton back then. Mm-hmm. But still, uh, there are so many great games available for Linux today, especially with Proton that you can play. But something important to note is that this not utilizing Windows and things for some of these things like gaming actually has a negative impact on the reputation of Linux and also it has a negative impact on the development of games and things for Linux. For instance, in this latest hardware survey, Linux represents 0.82% of the overall user base on Steam. Now, I know a lot more people that are utilize Linux game than 0.82%, but mm-hmm. I'm guessing most of them boot into their Windows installation to do their gaming. And then when they're getting surveyed or when you know Steam is looking at what, distro that uh, people are selecting in their settings for their primary, it's mm-hmm. probably showing Windows there. And we, we gave instructions in prior episodes on how to change that. Now, this is what amazes me most is that Mac OS represents 3.27%. Mac doesn't even have gaming systems out there. When you think of Mac, you don't think about gaming. Yes, they can because they have Intel GPUs and some of them have NVIDIA, um, or I'm sorry, Intel CPUs and some of them have NVIDIA GPUs. But for the most part, they're very underpowered in comparison to a you know PC out there. But they have 3.27% of the market um, in comparison. So yeah. we've gone up a little bit. We went up from 0.77% to 0.82. But this whole thing of dual booting to me is a negative because it impacts numbers like this, which if I was a developer writing a game and I see that Linux represents literally less than 1% of a market, it's not really going to be a priority for me at all. Yeah, I agree with that, and also point out that the way that games are done, if you, in the, the statistics leaves for Steam, if you have a game that is based on, let's say for example, Rocket League, because I haven't talked about it in the past couple episodes, uh, let's say you, this game is it supports Windows and Linux. Now, let's say you played this game for the first time you started playing it was on Windows, 
and you spent you know three weeks on that game on Windows, and then you spend two years on that game on Linux. That game you are still counted as a Windows user because the first two weeks of using of playing a game is where it associates whether or not you whatever platform you're using. So if you even if you spend a ton of time on Linux uh, on a particular game, but you spent the first two weeks on Windows, you were counted as a Windows user. So just as just keep that in mind that go go into your settings, change your preferences for wishlist to be Linux based platform. Um, you know, go, make sure you play at least even if you play the game on Windows at some point. If it if it's if it is available in Linux, at least play a little bit on Linux in the beginning so that they know that you are a Linux user. And then if you want to tr- transition over, then whatever. But uh, you know, let them do as much as you can to let them know that we are Linux users and they need to support us because you know I would agree that if it was less than one percent, I understand why developers would be like, mm. yeah. Does it work the other way around? Can you uh, can you play on Linux for the first couple of weeks and? Yes. Get it counted as a Linux, and then uh, and then switch over to Windows. You totally can, yes. So at least do that. At least give us at least get, do us a solid. At least count us as Linux, <laughs> even if you're not actually going to use Linux. It does surprise me to see some streamers out there actually, when the game is available to play in Linux, will still run their Windows version of it. I'm like, really? Do you really represent Linux? Anyways, uh, some of the interesting <laughs> statistics in here is Ubuntu 18.04 was 23.29% of the Linux distros used. So I expected that to be much higher. Um, Ubuntu 18.10 had 8.57%, and Manjaro was 6.8%. But in the other category, which is just other category, like that's the listing for it, is 52.19%. So I'm guessing that is all of the Arch users out there. It Naturally, must, that's the only yeah, option they, they could have they been. Dominate right there. No, but it's interesting <laughs> uh, that you know Ubuntu didn't have as much of a... I mean, that's a huge percentage, don't get me wrong, but I expected it to be overwhelming Ubuntu there, honestly. Well, I think that like, the, the main thing is like, when it comes, if you compare ubuntu versus literally any other distro it is a significant percentage comparison yeah but i think it's just the mainly thing like if you compare all other distros combined yeah ubuntu still the majority of the individual but it's going to be out you know uh there's there's so many other options that people are going to be using so i think that kind of makes sense yep 78 percent used intel cpus 21 percent used amd most popular gpus were the nvidia gtx 1060 and the radeon rx 480 out there so very interesting numbers to take a look at for arch i'm glad we went our arch for linux i'm glad we <laughs> i got arch on the brain i'm glad we went up in a percentage for linux uh slightly but it's just such a small percentage i think we could do better out there um so you I know agree. get out there and game on linux our software spotlight this week is hugo go hugo.io now if you need an easy static web page that's freely hosted on git check out hugo Sites like Let's Encrypt website are built with Hugo, for example, because the sites are simple and they don't require any fluff. There's a lot of discussion out there. A lot of people want to go to over to WordPress. Um, and WordPress has, again, going back to some security, has some security concerns if you're not going to be on top of the updates. And so then you want to go with static. The problem with the static site is if you're not an HTML wizard, then sometimes it can be difficult to get a, a website up and running. So Projects like GoHugo allow you to get into web development or get into getting a site up. Maybe you don't want to be a web pro. Uh, that's not what you want to devote your entire day to, but you need to have a static site up. This is a way that you can that you can get that up. Sites build in less than one second to finish. Unlimited content types. Hugo, they, Hugo has uh, short codes. They have a bunch of pre-made templates available and a bunch of quick start guides that 
we'll get you up and running. So check it out. It is gohugo.io. If you're uh, if you're I'm, if you're not aware, I'm also, I've been a web developer for many many years, and Hugo is one of the more popular static site generators. It's a really nice thing because the static site generators are cool because if you're not aware that what they do is they are their software that you run that generates static code on the back end. So that when you actually deploy it to the servers and for people to actually load, it's just static files. Well, at the same time, you can still have a dynamic functionality. Uh, when you want to make an update, you just use the generator to make create new files and then load those to the thing. Mm. And it really it does static files are absurdly fast, like ridiculous. Like for example, uh, Let's Encrypt uses the Hugo for their their website. If you go to the website, you go to the next page. It's so fast before you left before you pull your finger off the mouse button when you click it, it's already there. So that's because I mean, of the site the, the the static site stuff. Let me ask you something. What do you think of Hugo versus, like, let's say, um, uh, Nicola? I think that the it's really about the, the the way that they lay out and the, the stuff that they provide. Like, they, there's more templates with Hugo, and there's you know, but at the same time, it also depends on the type of language that you like. So, if you are a particular preference of language, like for example, uh, Hugo is 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 Go Hugo because it's written in Go, and um, Nicola, I don't remember what it's bit written in, but I think it's Python. Yes. And um, like Jekyll is written in Ruby, and there's um, there's a bunch of them. Like um, there's also um, Hackle, which is written in Haskell, if you like that. And there's mm-hmm. a, there's a lot of different. There's also JavaScript based ones. There's a variety of different types of uh, site gens. There's actually a website called SiteGen.com. That has a ridiculous amount of all, like basically all of them that are site gens. Um, the reason I the reason I ask you about Nicola is it's interesting you bring this up this week of all weeks because we just rolled out our new altaspeed.com website and it is a static site that is being generated with Nicola. And so I have spent my week kind of tweaking stuff and kind of getting into the workflow of pushing changes up, letting Nicola build, then publish out. And uh, that's been interesting to see how that works. Yeah, and I think site gens are a good option for people who want a, you know, they want a, a powerful website, but they don't want to put a ton of effort into a database-driven thing, or they don't want to have to keep up to date with right. all the stuff with WordPress. Because, like, if you use WordPress, WordPress is great. There's a ton of plugins. It makes it really powerful, all that stuff. But if you don't keep up to date with WordPress, it is painful because just being a couple months out of date then you're not getting these security patches and your system will, uh, in, in some cases, get hacked. You know, because, it, because WordPress is the most used system for websites, it is also the most um, attacked. So, Targeted, right. Right, so it makes sense that you would want to use, uh, you need to keep up to date. But if you do keep up to date, it's probably fine. But at the same time, you're still dealing with some uh, JavaScript load times issues, some PHP rendering issues, that kind of thing. In my case, in my opinion, it's not, you know, you could totally do it if you want to. There's not a big deal for using WordPress, but you need to make it stay up to date. Whereas a static site gen, you don't have to worry about them uh, implementing or getting through your JavaScript code or getting through your PHP or whatever because it doesn't exist. There isn't any PHP code that's running on that server because it's generated on your local computer and then pushed up to the deployment for the production. So that all they ever see is JavaScript, maybe a little bit of JavaScript, some CSS, HTML, and that's basically it. And so if you want the fastest and least worrisome about security, then a static side gen would probably be the best option for that. 
And there's there's a quite a few of them. I think Hugo is one of the the more popular, like Hugo Jekyll, Nicola. Um, there's there's quite a few of those, but those are probably the most popular anyway. So for our tips and tricks of the week, I wanted to have a terminal emulator showdown. So what are the best emulators out there today? Now there's only one answer, and so there's You're really right, not console showdown. It is Tilex. Tilex is absolutely the best <laughs> terminal emulator out there, bar none. Fight me real life if you disagree. <laughs> okay, I'll fight you in fight, real life. Fight me itself. For Rock's term. I can defend Rock's term all day long. So okay. prior to Tilex, I was a big Terminator fan, but you said Rock's term? Yeah. It, that doesn't even sound real. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I just made it up to see if you'd notice that I was making up. Ryan, it rocks. What do you mean? Yeah. Exactly. No, here's the here's the thing. It if I want if I want tiling terminals, I'll just use a tiling window manager, right? It the what I want and if I want to quickly bang something out in a terminal, I'm going to use a drop-down terminal. What I want in a terminal emulator is lots and lots and lots of features. The ability to zoom in very quickly, zoom out very quickly, paste various kinds of text, have multiple windows open, move them around, drag locations in and out. Those are the kind of things I like and Rockstorm does all of those. And I can make it look amazing because it the the appearance extensibility is great. So I'll put Rockstorm against Tilex any day of the week. You have a good. That's okay. That's a good point. It's <laughs> a good point. Uh, that's a good option. I would just have to point out that uh, console exists and Quake exists. Is that with a K? Of course. Yeah, of course. Okay. Just um, and uh, <laughs> console is great, and the latest version is getting tiling. If you want that, however, I don't necessarily use console because I use Quake. And they use they That's, use yep. the back the back end of Uquake is, is is very similar to console, but they have a <laughs> lot of cool features on it. So you're talking about if you want to use a drop down terminal, or you want to use a tiling window manager, or you want to all these different features. That's Uquake. All of those things you mentioned are all in one thing. But you can't run Uquake as a standalone window. So if I want to drag two windows side by side, I want to move them around. I can't do that. Hence Rockstar. But I have. But you can do tiling inside of Uquake, so you don't have to do that. <sighs> So there you go. I use, Drop I use down Uquake. tiling. I probably, window, use, uh, I probably use Uquake more than any other terminal emulator because it's just easier for me to hit tilde and type the command I want to type. Like that's that by far that's what I do. But if I'm going to have five servers open, I'm just not doing that in five different Uquake windows or tiling in Uquake. I'm just going to open up Rockstar. But you could, and that's like the important thing. I think totally it's cute could, that you like both use what would be the equivalent of like the sippy cup version of terminal emulators. So what do you for mean, us yeah, adults, sippy cup version of Timmy. Let me tell you something, child. Most adults utilize and would find. Let me uh, let me let me explain something to you, son. Uh, once you get once once you you know the the uh, when you're inside of the kitchen and and playing around um, with the butter knives when you come into the ninja side then what you have to understand is we don't have time to open an application and close an application I need to be able to hit a key SSH in do something and get myself back out and I can do that so much faster in Quake than I can in any other terminal emulator anyway in fact I'm I'm deciding I'm going to I'm going to abandon <laughs> My, my, I'm going to abandon defending Rockstorm, and I'm jumping on Michael's, my, Michael's bandwagon. The Quake is the best terminal emulator out there anywhere, just because you had to insult it and call it a kitty. Would you call it a sippy cup, <laughs> sippy the, cup ter- yeah, terminal emulator? Terminal. Yeah, that's what they should rename it to. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I think I, I think I think you Quake, and I think Tilex is really good too. I think Tilex yeah. has a drop down function and it has tiling and all that stuff. Um, I just like you Quake because. Um, 
it's cute based and it's it's smoother of course and it has uh you know that you can do the custom theming stuff for it it's got different profiles you can actually easily select which one you want it has a lot of default ones you can you can make custom ones you can make it integrate with your system easier with especially if you're a plasma user like it's just overall the best by far i mean there's really no we could just end the conversation right now there you go so a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux, however you do it. We love our patrons and Kofi supporters. Coffee supporters. Uh, just want to give a special shout out for your support that you give us. We do a live show for the patrons so you can come and join us and be a part of the show. You can do that for just a dollar, which is darn near free. And one of our patrons said they were surprised we haven't mentioned the fact that there is a free-to-all 25th anniversary issue of Linux Journal. So you can go and download that now and see that's some of the advantages of being a patron. You can help fix misses that we have or things <laughs> that you want to see on the show. You can suggest right there in the comments and poof, it appears just like that. Exactly. You think you can just get that with Patreon, but the truth, you can get that with coffee as well. All of Michael's Belches, they're all there what? in their raw form. Yeah, yeah, dude. They're all available there. If you <laughs> sign up for coffee for a nice monthly option that will give you the same perks as Patreon, including Michael's burps, there'll be a link in the show notes to our <laughs> website to join coffee. The perks include things like access to live shows, unedited version of the shows, as well as our most sincere gratitude and all of Michael's bodily noises. Yeah, <laughs> what? Why? What? That was like the third time. What are you talking about? It happened once. <laughs> He's no. really hungry. Something happened. I heard some sort of gurgles from you. <laughs> <laughs> so if you've heard Michael's gurgles, please let us know. Uh, you can reach us via multiple uh, methods there. Comments at destinationlinux.org, our Telegram group, Discord, Twitter, Mastodon, and all kinds of ways. <laughs> you can utilize to contact us at destinationlinux.org slash contact. Please keep your comments and questions coming. We love to read them and hear uh, your feedback on how much you love the show or things we can do to improve the show. That's right. And also the, the burps don't just stop here. You can, <laughs> you can find our content in various different, our own channels and you, <laughs> you, can, you can check out Ryan by going to t- youtube.com slash DOS geek. You can check out the video where he talked about moving, uh, putting Cody on those the other devices or, you know, the, the, the stuff he talks about, his new ridiculous heat sink or the Radeon mm-hmm. seven, all kinds of different content there. You can also check out, uh, my content at touchdigital.com where you can find this week in Linux podcast where there's very little burping and, um, <laughs> you can find <laughs> Noah's content at ask Noah show. Uh, asknoahshow.com where he talks about business no, and tech No burping questions. on asknoahshow.com. Yeah, absolutely. It's a burp-free zone. Right. He has, he has a mute button, so it's whatever. <laughs> and you can also check out Zeb. Uh, he's not with us this week, but he, or, and he won't be here next week, but you can definitely check out his content right now at uh, youtube.com slash 70boss. And uh, don't forget to like that smash button and share the show on social media. So everybody have a great week. And remember, the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. See ya. Did you not burp right before that? I swear I heard burp. <laughs> I didn't burp. That's I, the greatest outro ever. <laughs> I didn't burp. I said I snickered. Uh, he oh. said something. I forgot what you said, Ryan, but it was something it like a burp. I don't remember what you said, but I went. <clears throat> oh, maybe that's what it was. It sounded like a burp. I was like, man, again, right into the mic. <laughs> it wasn't a burp. Although I did burp in the unedited version, so if you do become a patron, you do see the burp I accidentally did earlier. I love it, man. That's hilarious. (laughs)